everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Since you're my special friend, come closer for a special treat. I'm going to let you touch me in a special place. It is never okay to touch someone else's private parts. Your mom and dad will tell you so. The Vatican has issued an unprecedented report into the failings of bishops, cardinals, and even popes in enabling a now-disgraced American cardinal to rise up the ranks of the Catholic Church. NPR's Sylvia Pajoli reports on how the case of Theodore McCarrick marks a reckoning for an institution known for its culture of secrecy. The report draws on documents and letters in Vatican and U.S. Catholic Church archives as well as witness testimony. Rumors had long circulated about McCarrick's alleged misconduct, but it wasn't until 2018 that New York's diocese announced it had found credible an allegation that McCarrick had sexually molested an altar boy in the early 1970s. News reports soon followed involving more accusations. His former diocese of Metuchen in Newark, New Jersey, revealed settlements in 2005 and 2007 with former seminarians accusing McCarrick of sexual misconduct. A Vatican inquiry found McCarrick guilty, and last year, Pope Francis defrocked him. Meanwhile, the Vatican was investigating how McCarrick, the former Archbishop of Washington, had risen to the pinnacle of power in the U.S. Catholic Church. The report found that in years past, three of four unnamed bishops had provided inaccurate information about McCarrick's behavior. It also quotes from a letter written by the late New York Cardinal John O'Connor to Pope John Paul II in 1999. The Cardinal advised against appointing McCarrick Archbishop of Washington because he was the subject of anonymous allegations. But John Paul ignored the advice. The report implies that John Paul's experience with the secret police in communist Poland convinced him that allegations of sexual misconduct by priests were aimed at damaging the Catholic Church. The Vatican's report appears to put most of the blame on the Polish Pope, who was proclaimed a saint in 2014. Silvia Podroli, NPR News, Rome. By the time I get to Arizona... One of the biggest surprises of the 2020 election was, 
Arizona. The historically red state flipped blue for Joe Biden, strengthening his lead in a contentious and close presidential race. Not only that, this is the first time since 1953 that the state will send two Democrats to the U.S. Senate. For Latino activists like Tania Unsueta, this was the result of over a decade of grassroots organizing. She is the political director of Mi Gente, and she joins us now. Hello. Hi, thank you for having me. So I want to start off with your reaction to the election results. Ah, it's definitely been something that we've been holding our breath for for a long time. I mean, I guess ever since Trump got elected. And um, yeah, this is a time for celebration. And at the same time, we're looking at what's next, both uh, in terms of uh, holding Biden accountable. And um, I'm actually in Georgia looking at the next Senate race on the runoff. Well, I want to talk about both those things, but uh, let's stay with Arizona for a moment. Tens of thousands of Latinos voted in Arizona. Can you describe your ground game? What issues got the votes? I think Arizona uh, was one because of the issues that people have been fighting for a long time on the ground. Uh, that has to do with immigration, criminalization, I would say, are at the top of the ticket. Um, you know, the the Arizona itself as a state has some of the highest incarceration rates and, and some of the toughest. Um, laws to keep people, like basically keep people in jail. And of course, we know some of the history of, of immigrant rights organizing against some of, uh, the toughest, uh, laws in the country. So, you know, I've been organizing in Arizona since we were trying to take out Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And I really think, uh, you know, what we've seen is some of the people who were leading on those fights, uh, on the electoral side and on the non-electoral side that have been leading on getting out the vote uh, and and turning Arizona blue. Yeah, in 2010, the state enacted some very strict immigration measures, which you credit with helping galvanize young Latinos. Um, And about 100,000 Latinos became old enough to vote in Arizona in just the past two years, right? That's right. I I think we're seeing um, a generation of Latinos who grew up not just seeing uh, anti-immigrant policies in the state, but actively fighting them. Um, I'm seeing an entire movement go around them, and so I think that's that's part of the the energy that's being felt in in Arizona. So, um, to your initial points, first of all, what would you like President-elect Joe Biden to know now? When you say you're going to hold him accountable, how? Sure. Look, um, you know, 44,000 Latinos have died of COVID. Uh, you know, 50 percent of Latinos have lost their jobs in the last year. There's Still, uh, immigrant, uh, immigrants are facing threats, particularly around deportation enforcement. There's people at the border who are waiting to seek asylum in the U.S. And, you know, we, we, uh, my organization was part of the conversations that happened way back in the primary when, you know, right after Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, there was a task force that came together to talk about some of the policies that needed to move forward and, and talk to the Biden campaign. We organized and, you know, we're looking forward to seeing some of those things happen. Um, at the top of my list is a moratorium on deportations, which Joe Biden has already said he was committed to in the first 100 days. And just very, very briefly, you're in Georgia now. What are you doing? That's right. Um, as we saw, the Senate race is a tie right now. We have two runoffs in Georgia. And, you know, Latinos may be 5% of the Georgia vote, but the presidential ticket is up right now. But 0.5%, and so Latinos are going to be an important part of uh, winning the Senate races here that could tip the, the Senate for the Democrats. That's Tania Unsueta of Mi Gente. Thank you very much. Thank you.
when you don't vote, you can't sit on a jury. You have no right to complain about the police because you won't even go and vote so you can even sit on a jury. Uh, as I've told, uh, said to the cows when I first started to call in, I spent 11 years on a job where, where I worked for a bank and had to sit in court day after day after day after day. And I watched them select juries. I watched black people going to jail. Black people have white, having white probation officers. And the whole judicial system um, just truncated with white supremacy. And a great deal of it is could some of it could be lessened if black people simply voted. A historic election week followed by an emotional weekend as Joe Biden was called the winner of the 2020 election, along with running mate Kamala Harris, the first woman, the first black woman, the first South Asian woman elected to the executive branch. You're listening to The Takeaway. I'm Tanzina Vega. Black women have long been the backbone of the Democratic Party, and this year is no different. Exit polls are showing that more than 90 percent of black women cast their ballots for the Democratic ticket. With slim margins in a number of battleground states like Georgia and Pennsylvania, black voters, especially black women, helped propel Biden and Harris to victory over President Trump. For more on the power of black women at the ballot box, I'm joined now by Kimberly Peeler Allen, visiting practitioner at the Rutgers University Center for American Women in Politics and Martha Jones, a professor from the Johns Hopkins University and author of Vanguard, How Black Women Broke Barriers, Won the Vote, and Insisted on Equality for All. Kimberly and Martha, thanks for joining us. So great to be here. Martha, this isn't new. Once again, black women have led the way for the Democratic Party. How did they become the most consistent Democratic voter bloc in United States history? Black women have for 100 years since ratification of the 19th Amendment, um, been organizing, strategizing, defying the odds, and insisting on a place at the table in American politics. Black women spend until 1965, too many of them disenfranchised until passage of the Voting Rights Act. And so when we see Senator Harris stands in for black women who today, in a short, short 55 years have made themselves a force in American politics. What motivated black women to the polls this year in particular? Well, I think um, what motivated them this year is very similar to what has motivated them to the polls ever since they got the franchise. Uh, And it was, I think, particularly salient this year that we Black lives were on the ballot. Uh, We were looking at equity. We were looking at inclusion. We were looking at our personal safety. We were looking at the 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 discord and the the language that was being uh, levied against black and brown people from the White House. And I think that was a huge contributing factor, as well as what has been happening with COVID and uh, how it has taken a disproportionate number of black lives uh, because of this virus and uh, and how it has been managed. And between that and education, and there was just so many issues uh, that brought black women to the polls. But we also you know, saw 
that it is it was our role uh, to to step up uh, to protect our democracy uh, and make sure that all of our voices and that were heard and that everyone had an equal chance to not just survive but truly thrive in this country. And in order for that to happen, we felt that it needed to be a change in the administration. If you are listening to our segment and you yourself are a black woman or a black American voter and you want to tell us your thoughts about this historic election, give us a call at 877-8MY-TAKE. That's 877-869-8253. Martha, Kamala Harris um, has regularly paid tribute to black women who have come before her, like civil rights activists Fannie Lou Hamer and Ida B. Wells and so many others. Were there echoes of these women during this election cycle? Absolutely. And thank you to Senator Harris for giving the nation a lesson in black women's political history, because you are right. She has at every opportunity at the podium um, reminded us of the um, the legacy of women like Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, like Ida B. Wells and so many others. I think one of the things that we see in Senator Harris that is so characteristic of this legacy is her broad, broad vision. Um, in addition to all of the issues that um, Kimberly has so importantly laid out, um, black women have characteristically over the course of more than a century held up the very notion of democracy, the very ideals right, that undergird this nation, not only for black Americans, but for all Americans. And what I hear when I see Senator Harris stepping to the podium, taking the microphone, is a candidate and now a vice president elect who is speaking to all Americans, who is speaking to our highest ideals. And those are the interests not only of black women, those are the interests of everyone. I would love both of you to weigh in on this. Martha, I'll start with you. And then Kimberly, I'd love your thoughts here because Kamala Harris, it's, we've been talking about this uh, since she was uh, a candidate uh, for president and then uh, Joe Biden's running mate. But she has made history here as the first woman, the first black woman, the first South Asian woman ever elected vice president in our nation's history also the daughter of immigrants. Um, What will it mean to have someone like Kamala Harris in the White House, Martha? You know, on the one hand, I think it's important to say that, in my view, um, dubbing her a first is in some ways faint praise. I think we should respect her for her singular accomplishments. But I think the most important effect of her election is the sign that black women have become a force in American politics. No longer are we simply breaking barriers or um, becoming first, but we are really um, consolidating power at the highest level. Senator Harris ran alongside 130 black women who were vying for seats in Congress in 2020. And this is a new day in American politics where no longer is she a token. She is someone who really has the capacity now um, to govern to legislate alongside other black women and to steer the national agenda um, in many of the ways that Kimberly has outlined for us. Um, Of course, um, I am someone like many of us so, so deeply moved by the images of our daughters and our granddaughters um, meeting, looking up to, watching the television as Kamala Harris takes the podium. And this representation will mean a great deal for the ambition of black girls, 
young black women going forward in the next um, in the next cycles and in the next generations. Um, but make no mistake, um, more than a force, more than a first, she is part of a force. Kimberly, your thoughts on on that, on what Kamala Harris, what it will mean to have someone like Kamala Harris in the White House, and and also what does she symbolize? Um, sort of picking up on what Martha was just saying about the future of black women in politics. Yeah, I absolutely echo everything that Martha said. And I think it um, really is a great opportunity to bring uh, diverse voices, uh, a diverse life experience to the highest uh, decision-making table. And I think that's one of the things that is just so um, exciting and inspiring in addition to seeing someone that looks like me, that looks like my daughter, uh, but also to know that uh, she is, you know, she will be bringing so much more that has never been part of this conversation. And it really shows the possibilities that exist. And we are continuing to expand Black women's elected leadership in this country, not just at the top of the ticket, but we are continuing to grow the number of Black women um, in Congress. Uh, you know, there's still several seats that uh, that are to be decided with uh, with the record vote count. But we it looks like we have um, added three more black women to the halls of Congress. We are still there are so many firsts that are happening at the state legislative level. And it just shows that black women uh, are definitely a force. And we have something uh, tremendous to contribute to the conversation that the electorate sees value in those contributions and sees sees the opportunity to add diff more voices, different uh, conversations and more issues uh, to the national discourse. Martha, when we talk about um, black women and, and political activism, we can't ignore the fact that Black Lives Matter was founded uh, by three black women. That is also something that can you tell us a little bit about the historical engagement of black women in terms of organizing movements like that, organizing to get the vote, organizing to bring uh, attention to issues that affect not just black women, but black people more broadly? We can't miss in this moment, even as Senator Harris is the vice president-elect, that what undergirds that is black women's organizing. Um, just tune in to Alicia Garza and appreciate um, her message, right, which is yes to the streets and yes to the ballot box. And what we saw in this election season was the wedding of those two approaches to American politics. Is that something that's you would say has gotten stronger, uh, not just taking it to the streets, but actually taking it to the ballot box? Was that the missing link in terms of engagement, particularly for um, black women, black people in this country? That has always been true for us, but I think that um, in this season, that became apparent um, in the sort of compressed circumstances of coronavirus, a summer of, of Black Lives Matter um, uprisings across the country with this extraordinarily consequential election. Election, we all got a lesson in African-American politics, I think, this season by seeing it compressed under extraordinary circumstances. Those facets that always have always been there and um, we saw them come together vividly. Black women, Asian, white, Latina, Native American women, 
who throughout our nation's history have paved the way for this moment tonight. Women who fought and sacrificed so much for equality and liberty and justice for all, including the black women who are often too often overlooked, but so often prove they are the backbone of our democracy. Kimberly, we just heard uh, Kamala Harris say that black women cannot be overlooked anymore. Um, Joe Biden, in his uh, in his speech, essentially uh, over the weekend, said that he uh, recognized the power of black voters. Are black women going to finally get their due from this administration? That is the hope. Um, I think we're really hoping to uh, finally get the return on our political investment, uh, that we will, uh, our issues will uh, have a a voice and have a place in this administration. And as much as uh, we fought to support and uh, get the ticket to, to this place, we will definitely be holding it accountable uh, and looking at uh, many of the policies that um, the president-elect uh, laid out in his victory speech on Saturday night that uh, that he actually puts uh, a lot of policy and meat behind them. But um, I think this is a huge step forward. The fact that uh, things like systemic racism and uh, health care are, you know, front and center uh, in his mind and absolutely in the vice president elect's mind as well. Um, I think there's a huge potential for a tremendous amount of progress, but we will definitely be doing as much as we can to help advance that and also hold them accountable. Martha, there's uh, to your point about, you know, making a lot about being the first, being the first often also means being the only. Um, And there will be an enormous amount of pressure, uh, not just on Joe Biden, uh, but also on Kamala Harris um, being in that role. She received a lot of criticism before uh, earning her spot as vice president in terms of how she dealt with criminal justice issues when she was attorney general of California. So the pressure that she is under is, I think, in many ways, unimaginable to have to sort of um, satisfy the uh, the demands of a very progressive uh, constituency that essentially voted her into office. I don't think um, Senator Harris is new to that sort of pressure. Um, as you've mentioned, you know she's already been subject to that kind of scrutiny as she herself was part of this primary contest um, that led up to her nomination. Um, so in one sense, I think she's someone who is frankly um, very tested when it comes to that sort of scrutiny, um, that sort of pressure. On the other hand, the, the pressure I'm interested in is um, what it is like for not only um, leaders in this country, um, but leaders across the globe um, to come to the table in Washington and sit across from now Vice President Harris um, to contend with a black woman world leader, um, not only to understand her history, but to understand her position, her ideas, and frankly, to understand her culture. Um, You know, one of the things that we've commented on is everything from Senator Harris rocking, you know, Tim's and Chuck's on the tarmac um, to the side eye during debates. Um, I think there's a new page in the handbook 
book of world diplomacy, and it will be one devoted to um, understanding how black women come culturally um, to the table in American and world politics. Get your booty to the pole, 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 yeah. When he gave his victory speech on Saturday, President-elect Joe Biden specifically thanked black voters for helping him to win. The African-American community stood up again for me. We've always had my back, and I'll have yours. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, sir. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> Let's give him one more chance, man. Run that shit the fuck back. The African-American community stood up again for me. We've always had my back, and I'll have yours. Bye, Felicia. But as we know, the black community is not a monolith. I talked to three black men about the election, what message they had heard from the Biden campaign, and the future. John Settles is 59 and lives in Seattle. He voted for Biden. Tim Graves is 58 and lives in Jacksonville, Florida. He voted for Trump. And Dimitri Coles from Waterbury, Connecticut, is 25. He told me that he voted for the Green Party candidate, Howie Hawkins, because he didn't connect with either major party. There's a trust issue. I view the black community's relationship with the Democratic Party, for example, as sort of like a domestic violence relationship. You know, we've been giving our vote to them loyally um, for 55, 60 years, and we have got nothing in return. And as for the Republican Party, I don't feel as if they care about me at all, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's just more blatant. Dimitri, this is a hard thing to quantify. What is the nothing that Democrats have promised that you haven't gotten? Well, first, I can just start off by saying um, I was on board with Bernie Sanders. Okay. The issues that he was, you know, student debt forgiveness, Medicare for all, criminal justice reform, and he laid out, like, you know, specific things for the black community that I really thought that were, you know, common sense things. And I saw Joe Biden, you know, he was saying that Medicare for all is never going to happen. It's not possible. Then he, you know, laid stipulations on, you know, student loan forgiveness, criminal justice reform. Um, it's hard for me to even trust him on that, you know, seeing his responsibility in the 1994 crime bill. And that's where the trust issue came in for me. John, you voted for Joe Biden. When you hear Dimitri say the Democrats haven't done much for us, tell me what goes through your mind. Really what mattered for me in this election, I love Bernie Sanders' platform. I really was looking for someone to dispose Trump. I didn't want to squander my vote on a position that would dilute that power. And so that was more important to me. You this, picked this, the guy who you thought could win. I did. I mean, I have some policy issues that, that are concerning, and uh, but I, they're more of a concern under uh, the current administration. What are the policy issues that concern you? Top two. The economy, COVID, and racial equity. I know that's three. No, that's good. That's fine. What did you hear from President Trump that made you think on these three issues, this guy, not, not just this guy isn't fixing it, but it's so bad that I'm willing to back a candidate I don't love because I want him out? 
I just didn't hear myself included in a lot of the rhetoric in the last four years. I mean, I, there's a lack of compassion, and it just didn't resonate with me. Mr. Graves, let me turn this over to you. You voted for President Trump. You heard Mr. Settle say, I didn't feel like when he spoke, he was talking to me. Give me an example of a moment where you heard President Trump speak and you really did feel included. Yes, ma'am. Number one, after almost 40 years of promises from every president up to Donald Trump, historically black colleges for the first time got long-term funding. Number two, the lowering of black unemployment is absolutely incredible. Of course, we know that it is the top that has ever been in the country prior to COVID. And number three, as he said, I mean, what do we have to lose? I mean, from the point that Johnson and the Democrat Party back in the late 60s and early 70s made policies that take the black man out of the house, with welfare. And that's been one of their goals since then, is to make sure that Blacks in general remained on government assistance and they could keep that vote. What does Joe Biden have to do to be your president? Absolutely zero. Because I mean, I will, once everything is settled, kind of accept him as the president because he will be the president. But personally, I mean, absolutely nothing. You know, and it goes all the way back to the crime field. So I doubt very seriously that I'd be able to come around because I think ultimately, ultimately what his actions are will determine that, you know, and it doesn't matter what party you're from. It's your policies. It's your issues that I vote on. Mr. Coles, you voted for a third party candidate. What does Joe Biden have to do to become your president? Really, he would have to, you know, make large changes to his platform and his policies. Give me some examples. Like Medicare for all. <laughs> like, for example, that's that's really big for me, especially someone who's about to be kicked off uh, my parents' health care plan uh, next year. Not only did I graduate college, but, you know, I also went to grad school. So drastic changes, you know, to you know, student loans are also you know needed into higher education in general. And do I think he could do it? I don't think so. I don't think he will do it either. Mr. Settles, you voted for Joe Biden because you wanted President Trump out of office, and it looks like you got what you wanted. You were a reluctant Biden voter. What does he need to do to get you behind him? One, there's got to be discussion in terms of bringing different viewpoints into having a concerted effort to move the issues forward. You know, racial equity is really a thing for me. I think in this whole the George Floyd moment, we've, we've missed an opportunity because now it's devolved into the looting and vandalism and people want to you know, label it as that. But it opened a door to a conversation that really we haven't had in a long, really ever in this country. And you know, people are ready for the conversation. That was John Settles in Seattle, Washington, Tim Graves in Jacksonville, Florida, and Dimitri Coles in Waterbury, Connecticut. White supremacy is a sickness. 
First, is this finally the light at the end of the tunnel? The American pharmaceutical company Pfizer and its German partner BioNTech have announced that they've developed a coronavirus vaccine that can prevent more than 90% of people getting COVID-19. That's at least according to their preliminary analysis. So far, it's been tested on more than 40,000 people in six countries, and no safety concerns have been raised. Mikhail Dolston is Pfizer's chief scientific officer. You know, it just feels that it's such a great there for science and humanity. And while I was with uh, everyone and sitting next to our CEO, Albert Pola, hoping for high numbers, this certainly was fulfilling our best expectations. And we just felt so thrilled. It felt like a historic moment. There are more steps that needs to happen. But we feel that we are on the cusp of one of the biggest medical advances for society and mankind in, in the 100 years that have passed here. But we'll work hard to make sure that the promise deliver. And it was an amazing moment. I wish you would have been there with me, here, there with me. It was joy and tears all at once. There are around a dozen vaccines in the final stages of testing, known as a phase three trial, but this one is the first to show any results. Dr. Sophie Harmon is a professor of international politics and a global health expert. She welcomed the findings, but urged caution. Of course, it's very exciting. I think the world has been waiting for this vaccine. So I think it's a testament to how pharmaceutical companies, scientists, governments have been working together. However, let's not get carried away. There is an issue of safety, scale. We still don't know a lot about it, but there is a pause for thought. This shouldn't be a reason for us to take the foot off the pedal with, in terms of getting the basics right around tracking the virus, test and trace and things like that. We still need those. Vaccines are not a silver bullet. And again, we have this wider question of trust and access. And I think these are the two issues that are going to really come into play. Our health correspondent Anna Collinson told me more about this new development. This is a two-shot vaccine and it's been jointly developed by the US Drugs Corporation, Pfizer and the German company BioNTech. And initially it would be given to some of the people at highest risk, so frail, the elderly, uh, healthcare workers working on the front line. But it is important to point out that this study, which has enrolled more than 43,000 people and has taken place across six countries, while this vaccine has seen to be 90% effective and have so far shown no safety concerns, we are still in the trial stages. They are still collecting data. So we're not at a sort of final point yet. We are still there, but the but the progress that is being made is, is particularly positive, and this is really seen as a real moment, a real celebration. Uh, and the way, the sort of science behind the way this works is many standard vaccines work by injecting a dead or weakened form of an infectious agent, for example, the virus, into the body. And this is designed to build the body's immunity. But this new vaccine is an RNA vaccine, which works slightly differently. It's ejected into the body and it enters cells and it produces antigens, which are mod- molecules which then produce antibodies and prepare the body to fight the disease. Now, the benefits of this RNA vaccine is it's made from a DNA template in a lab, which means ultimately it's a faster approach compared to the more conventional method. And as we know right now, speed during this pandemic is key. Indeed. And everyone's been waiting for something like this to emerge. Can we call it a game changer? 
it feels like we're on the way for it to being a game, game changer. I mean, it's been described as a great day for science and humanity, a significant step forward for the world in the battle against the pandemic. Though, again, you have to uh, sort of apply these important caveats. Data is still being collected. This vaccine may work for lots of people, but it may not work for everyone. It may be good at dealing with the symptoms, but it may not prevent infection. There are also other issues that need to be considered when we're thinking about the rolling out of this vaccine, if and when it's given that uh, sort of approval to, to, to go forward. First of all, storage. The vaccine would need to be kept at minus 80 degrees to be rolled out. So there are real logistical issues there. You know, in the UK, we're hearing about doctors, GPs and pharmacists preparing to administer a vaccine if and when it's ready. But how are they going to store that vaccine in minus 80 degrees? So that's one thing to think about. Another thing is, of course, attitudes to vaccines. Lots of people are suspicious about them and we need lots of take up for them to be effective. And of course, as I just mentioned, they won't necessarily work for everyone. Anna Collinson. The Pfizer announcement led to some big rises on financial markets around the world. The UK FTSE 100 was up over 5%. Germany's DAX up over 5%. And the French CAC 40 up over 6%. In New York, share prices opened up just over 5% as well. Travel firms, which have been hit hardest by the pandemic, saw the biggest gains. Here's our global trade correspondent, Darshini David. Well, the world has been holding its breath, of course, for months for news of something that might just alleviate the strain on lives and livelihoods. And they're seizing upon this news in trading floors around the world. The FTSE 100, as you say, up by around 5%. It's a similar story across the European markets. The US markets expected to open sharply higher too. Now, this is very much a hope rally. Hope that this gives uh, a new chances to industries such as airlines and hotels that some previously had thought might face a struggle, if not somewhat of a demise. But I can tell you right now, looking at some of the share prices right now, Cineworld, remember that? 55%. Cruise companies up by over 30%. Airlines as well, uh, IAG, that's the parent company of British Airways, up by over 40%. Now, they all know we've got a long way to go, as we've been hearing. This is not the end of this battle by any means. But this is built on something that we saw earlier in the day as well. Because remember, we saw the markets already up on what many are calling a Biden bounce. But this, of course, gives hope in an additional area, not just in terms of trying to cushion the economic blow, but for safeguarding the future, not just of the health of the world, but also, of course, the financial health as well of the globe. But uh, the markets are very volatile right now as we speak. Our pension funds, however, doing much better than they were just a few hours ago. The big question, of course, is will it last? Markets still below where they were at the start of 2020. What a year it's been. Darshini David. Zoom's share price, however, has dropped in the wake of the positive news about the vaccine. The video conferencing app has been one of the most famous beneficiaries of the pandemic and gained 635% in 2020, but its stock price fell around 15% in pre-market trading and is continuing to fall. Now everybody's like, jails ain't tough enough. Jails ain't tough enough. We got to have a death penalty. Jails ain't tough enough. Coronavirus is spreading fast through U.S. jails and prisons. In California, advocates for prisoners' rights are calling for some action, including the release of people who are medically vulnerable. Here's NPR's Eric Westervelt. 
Inmates, some in poor health, packed into overcrowded, aging buildings, have combined with stunning missteps to help the coronavirus continue to hammer America's inmates. California, Ohio, and Florida have among the highest number of cases in jails and prisons. Nationally, nearly 1,400 inmates and correctional staff have died so far. Attorney Jamie Popper works on prisoners' rights issues in South Carolina and California. Things are as bad as ever. It shows that the government's just failing to protect the most vulnerable people who can't protect themselves because of their status as incarcerated people. The coronavirus has ripped through California's prisons, infecting about 17,000 inmates and killing at least 82 prisoners and 10 staff so far. And nine months into the pandemic, not enough prison staff or inmates are wearing masks often enough to protect against the spread of the deadly virus. That's the conclusion of a recent report by the prison's Office of the Inspector General. IG Roy Wesley also found that employees on the front lines of protecting anyone entering the state's prisons simply were not prepared. Most screeners had received no training on their prison screening process. Other failures would seem almost comical if people's lives weren't at stake. About two-thirds of prison screeners told the IG key tools were broken or faulty. Many staff reported to us that thermometers they were using stopped working because they ran out of battery power and screeners did not have fresh batteries available. How the virus continues to harm and kill behind bars says a lot about the ticking time bomb mix of public indifference, aging infrastructure, poor oversight, and weak health services in America's prisons and jails. In California, the blunders continue six months after the state's bungled transfer of inmates from another state prison to San Quentin, prisoners who inexplicably were not tested before or after arriving. 29 inmates and one staff member died after that transfer. State Assembly in Mark Levine's district includes San Quentin. The ticking time bomb went off when they botched the transfer. This was the worst prison health screw-up in California history. In a scathing rebuke, a state appeals court last month ruled that San Quentin's handling of the pandemic amounted to, quote, deliberate indifference to the safety and health of inmates. The court called the prison's lack of urgency on the virus morally indefensible and constitutionally untenable. It ordered San Quentin to cut its inmate population in half by either releasing or moving some 1,500 inmates. But California's prisons are the subject of long, ongoing litigation and court action due to overcrowding. And during the pandemic, the state has released least some 20,000 inmates. But inmate rights attorney Jamie Popper says so far the state has largely ignored the appeals court's ruling on San Quentin. She says the prison system overall is backsliding on early releases. Early release programs are decreasing in the number of people released dramatically. And the one specifically aimed at releasing people with the high medical risk was stopped at the beginning of October. A spokeswoman for the state's prisons declined NPR's interview requests. As infection rates rise nationally and creep back up again in California, Assemblyman Levine worries the state is failing to reduce the prison population fast enough. And he reminds people that San Quentin's outbreak had a profound impact outside the prison's walls. The prison system was calling 911 every single time an incarcerated individual needed hospitalization. This was not efficient. The crisis severely taxed the area's emergency response system, Levine warns, and could well again. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, San Francisco. Listen, just touching on some real issues right here tonight. That's all. That's all. I want y'all to observe the excellence here. 
BX providing the Sonics, my man Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up, you know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. <laughs> you hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. Ain't no black people in Minnesota. When George Floyd was killed by police earlier this year, it sparked both massive protests and conversations about the many ways racial inequality plays out in this country. One of those ways is health. Black people are twice as likely to die of heart disease and COVID-19 as white people. Those differences are visible in one of Minneapolis's most diverse neighborhoods. It's just three miles from where George Floyd was killed. But there's a clinic there that has decades of experience grappling with race and health, and it's now being held up as a model. NPR's Yuki Noguchi has been reporting in North Minneapolis and joins me. Hi, Yuki. Hi, David. So take us there. What, what got you interested in this neighborhood? Yeah, what interested me in North Minneapolis is its incredible racial diversity within a state that's mostly white. Um, 90% of residents there are a racial minority. It's about half black, about a third Latino, and about a tenth Asian, mostly Southeast Asian. And the area reflects what we know nationally, that communities of color have more health problems, especially now with the pandemic. Cases of COVID in North Minneapolis run five to six times higher than the state. So safe to say this is a place that's been grappling with questions about race and health and, and that relationship for a very long time. Absolutely. North Minneapolis is like a poster child for race and its effect on health. And that's been the case for decades. Well, I know we're going to talk about this one clinic I mentioned, but um, you, you know, you mentioned the case for decades. I mean, to tell us more about that history. You know, George Floyd's death struck a real chord here, and the protests afterward felt like a real echo from the past. And to explain why, let me take you back 53 years ago. There were similar protests there back then. There was unrest over discrimination, including in access to health care, among other things. And that led to similar sort of rioting and protests on the streets of North Minneapolis. Violence on the city's north side grew from isolated acts to mob action. Store windows were shattered by hundreds of stones and bricks. A man named Gary Cunningham remembers that. He grew up on Plymouth Avenue in North Minneapolis, and in the summer of 67, he watched it burn. I was 10 years old at the time, but it was very traumatizing to see all these black people getting beat up by police and the fires right on our block. You know, back then, Plymouth Avenue had a lot of shops catering to mostly Jewish and black residents. But getting medical care was a problem. There was an issue with ambulance service. Ambulance wouldn't serve black community there. So to see a doctor, Cunningham and his mother had to take the bus across town. Most blacks went to Dr. Brown. His office would be like 200 people in the waiting room because he was one of the few black physicians. There was a couple of black physicians there. Access to care was a major issue for black people. And the government tried to close that gap. President Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty set up pilot programs in 14 cities to offer health and social services. And that's when North Minneapolis got something it hadn't had before, a community health center. It opened months after the 67 riots and was known as Pilot City. It was located in an old synagogue on Plymouth Avenue, just three blocks from where Cunningham lived. Today, it's called North Point Health and Wellness. Ten pairs Yuki Noguchi there talking to us about the North Minneapolis and, and the history. And, and Yuki, 
I mean, how important is having access to a community health center like that? It sounds like a really big deal. Yeah, it was because it was nearby, but also because of how the clinic operates. And here's Gary Cunningham again. I just remember it being a place where community gathered. The health center at that time and the social service center were one place. And David, you notice how Cunningham talks about health and social service in the same breath there? That's key to understanding what makes North Point different. It looks at the social reasons that people end up with the health conditions they have. That concept's become very popular recently, but it's been North Point's focus for decades. So here's an example of what I mean. Four decades after Pilot City, now North Point, started, Gary Cunningham ended up taking it over as CEO. And at the time, the clinic was in disarray. I mean, patients weren't getting regular vaccinations or mammogram screenings. And under Cunningham, it developed some unusual solutions. It provided bus tokens to patients who couldn't otherwise afford transportation. And they made inroads with a growing Somali and Hmong population by hosting lunch events with religious leaders and food from those communities. And did that make a difference? I mean, did you see the vaccination or or screening rates start to change? Yeah, it did. I mean, in 15 years, childhood vaccinations and mammogram rates have more than doubled to close to 80%. But it's not just vaccinations, David. I mean, diabetes, lead poisoning, and depression are also huge problems there. So North Point lobbied to remove lead paint from homes. It stocks, even today, a free food shelf with healthy, culturally relevant food. People are screened for depression and dental care just automatically. So, David, what you're seeing here is that instead of just writing a prescription, North Point is looking at the whole picture. It treats disease not just as a medical problem, but one that has social roots. And is that still the case even in the middle of a pandemic and all the extra challenges we we are seeing right now? Is that approach still working? Yeah. And one of the great things about this model is that it's developed a lot of trust in the community. You know, a majority of North Point's board of directors is run by patients from the community. They reflect the community. And North Point's current CEO, Stella Whitney West, told me that is critical. The people who operate or who have the responsibility for overseeing your clinic are the same people who are the patients and customers of your clinic. You know, they know what the community needs, even right now, because they are the community. And so people trust them, which is critically important during the pandemic. Nearly two-thirds of Latino patients testing for COVID at North Point test positive. That's extremely high and very worrisome. But Whitney West says it's also a positive sign. It means undocumented immigrants trust North Point. When I talk with the staff, they started telling me people feel safe here. So they're likely to come here as opposed to going downtown to the hospital. And from a public health standpoint, that's essential. You know, you need to know where the virus is in order to stop its spread. And you know, David, we are at a critical time right now with COVID cases spiking around the country. And a lot of experts are saying we need more of a public health approach to delivering care, the very kind of thing North Point has been championing for decades. Well, and Yuki, I know this is just the beginning of your reporting. We're going to be hearing your reporting on other aspects of race and public health. NPR's Yuki Noguchi, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Medical Apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. The coronavirus pandemic did not take a break for the election this past week. 
In fact, the U.S. set new records for the number of daily new COVID cases for several days in a row, with more than 126,000 new cases reported on Friday alone. That according to Johns Hopkins University. And even as the pandemic rages on across the country, there's a sense that at least some Americans don't view it as a problem, at least not their problem, refusing to wear masks or practice social distancing or pushing back against measures intended to slow down the spread of the virus. We wanted to talk about that more with someone who's been on the front lines of battling COVID-19, so we called Dr. Tyson Bell. He is the director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Dr. Bell, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us. Thank you for having me. First of all, can I just ask you what this past week has been like for you? Are you seeing many new cases where you are? Um, so far, we have not seen a large rush of cases in the central Virginia area, but we do expect that along with the rest of the country that we'll st- soon start to see uh, increasing cases. So I'm going to be actually in the COVID ICU next week, and um, we're just getting ready for the um, influx is coming. You know, and at some point after this crisis began to unfold in in the United States, we began hearing about how communities of color were being particularly hard hit. For example, in Chicago, I mean, the city's only 30 percent black, but black people are 60 percent of the COVID fatalities. In Nebraska, Latinos are only 11 percent of the population, but they're 60 percent of the coronavirus cases and they are one in four deaths. Have you been seeing that where you are? Um, So nationwide, the uh, age-adjusted mortality for Blacks and Latinos is three times higher than in in white patients. Luckily, at the University of Virginia, we do see a disproportionate number of cases in minority populations. Our mortality, however, is around the same. So we have been very proud of that fact that uh, we do seem to be at least getting people through it at the same rate, although we're seeing a disproportionate number of cases coming in. Now, I wanted to ask you about the messaging around that. I mean, the fact is that a lot of health advocates started pushing the message out once they realized that this disproportionate impact was occurring because they were concerned that the Trump administration was not communicating the risks of the virus forcefully enough, especially to those most at risk. And of course, now we have proof in the president's own words to a journalist, Bob Woodward, that he was in fact downplaying the severity of the virus, you know, for his own reasons. But as I said, you know, advocates, people who are particularly close to this, this issue started pushing out the fact that there was this disproportionate impact. And now I'm wondering whether that's affected people's attitudes around the country about COVID-19. Could that be part of the reason that, that other groups don't think this is serious? Uh, well, you know, interesting thing about COVID-19 is that it's contagious, right? So even though COVID-19 is really just a new manifestation of something that we've seen in several diseases that disproportionately affect minority populations, this is one that will eventually make its way to every part of the country. So earlier on in the pandemic, we were mostly focused on highly concentrated, dense urban areas that had higher minority populations. Um, there is a sense that maybe it wouldn't come to other parts of America. And you know, we've, we've seen that that's certainly not the case at this point. I understand that. But what I'm trying to understand is why is it that the message around the severity of this doesn't seem to be penetrating some groups? Well, it wasn't just that the messaging was uh, not disseminated. It was actively suppressed. Um, there are large segments of the country that do not believe this is serious because they were told that it's not serious or not emphasized how serious it was. And um, until you actually see it in your community, that's the only point when you begin to understand how bad this can be. And before we let you go, without violating anyone's um, you know, privacy, are there any 
stories that particularly stand out to you of circumstances that you think might help people understand the gravity of this if they don't already? There was one day I was rounding in our COVID ICU and we were taking care of um, around 20 so patients or so. And we have one wing of our ICU um, that's um, almost all Hispanic last names and another high fi ICU that's almost all black last names. And I only grew up an hour away from where I'm working. So I actually know a lot of these family names and uh, are familiar with them. And, and these are people that, um, that I know. And I was trying to get through the day and, and just try to get through the business of morning rounds. But I just couldn't escape that thought of this virus is disproportionately killing people in my community. And I had to pause rounds and just acknowledge how tough emotionally it was for me just to see what we were seeing. And I didn't know what to do about it. I didn't know how to deal with that emotion, but I had to get it out there because if I was feeling that way, I knew that several other of my team members are feeling the same way too. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we're tracking a lot of numbers and, you know, because the metrics are important, but we have to remember that behind that number is a story, a story of a life. Just to think about the individuals that we're losing and, you know, the weddings that are being missed, the barbecues, the hugs, the the reunions, and all these opportunities and moments that are going to be lost because of this virus, um, you know, it's just really hard to think about. That's Dr. Tyson Bell. He directs the medical intensive care unit at the University of Virginia. Dr. Bell, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. Black babies cost less. George Floyd's killing in Minneapolis placed police violence again in the national limelight with protests erupting. But black and brown communities say the effect of police violence is felt long after demonstrations die down. In fact, research shows trauma from racism and violence can leave imprints on a community's health, including on pregnant women. Here's NPR's Yuki Noguchi. Outside the corner store where George Floyd died, murals, stuffed animals, and origami cranes fill the street. So I'm Rachel Hardiman. I am on the faculty. Rachel Hardiman grew up nearby and is a public health professor at the University of Minnesota. We walk in a field where there's a memorial for victims of police violence. It looks like a replica of a cemetery with about 200 grave markers. This is like Ralph Bell, right? Hardell Sherrell over here. Particularly. Many of these people were local and died at the hands of police. Travis Jordan, Minneapolis. He's actually a, was a friend of one of my dear friends. Hardiman surveys the makeshift cemetery. My first thought is like, this isn't even all of the names. And that breaks my heart. This scene, she says, doesn't capture the whole of the problem. That police violence leaves marks across a community of survivors, their families and neighbors. Hardiman studies racial disparities in health, focusing on a long-standing problem. Black mothers die in childbirth at three to four times the rate of whites. That holds true regardless of wealth or education. Black babies are more than twice as likely to die in their first year. Research suggests racial discrimination is a likely cause of both preterm birth and infant mortality outweighing factors like obesity, smoking, or poor prenatal care. Hardiman's latest research looks at how police violence in particular might affect that. She studied women in and around Minneapolis after police shot Philando Castile in 2016, and two years later, 
Thurman Blevins. Thurman Blevins had just been killed in North Minneapolis, and we asked folks, do you feel like this is impacting your current pregnancy? And over half of the women in our study said yes. Nearly 60% of those women gave birth to preterm babies who were underweight or died. At root, she says, it's about stress, a lifetime of struggles over housing, education, and safety. A large body of research shows that that stress across pregnancy can have an impact on low birth weight and preterm birth in particular. Setting the start of life is so important because if we can't get that right, you know, we're setting someone up for a lifetime of pain and of struggle and disadvantage. Examining these struggles, Hardiman says, might help doctors better understand challenges for women like Raven Kane. I meet Kane and her three-week-old daughter, Remy. Prior to Remy, Kane had five miscarriages with no medical explanation about what caused them. I had gotten an ultrasound and had seen a baby in a strong heartbeat and literally had come back the next day and there was nothing there. So I just had this really high anxiety. Anxiety about losing her pregnancy with Remy, too. She was about four months pregnant when the pandemic hit. Then George Floyd died blocks from her parents' home. You know, during that time, it was constant sirens. And they were saying that the KKK was supposedly in town. And it's just stressful. It's like, and then you're trying to carry a life. And then you're thinking about them being a black person in this world and the things that they might encounter. Kane tried to distract herself by hosting a family party to reveal she was having a girl. My dad was just jumping up and down like he was so happy. He said he went in the garage and cried a little bit. Cried partly out of relief. He told her the world wasn't safe for black boys. Midwife Rebecca Polston hears that often. Polston started Roots Community Birth Center five years ago to offer women more support than a traditional hospital. Her clinic defied the odds. In five years, only one client has had a preterm birth. She says that's because the clinic addresses trauma. Some of the things that we explore is not finding out the sex of their baby because the stress that it brings when you find out that you're having a black son. That kind of stress, she says, is palpable all around her. After George Floyd's death, Polston says she confronted a group of white men flying Confederate flags three blocks away. She closed the birthing center for a week. But the threat, she says, isn't just from outsiders. Once, an elderly neighbor fainted nearby. Polston and her staff rushed to help. And the police came up with their hands on their guns saying, what are you doing to us while we're taking blood pressure and clearly health care providers? Those interactions where those who you call for help may not come to help you but come to harm you shadows every aspect of one's life. And it becomes especially acute when you're in your birthing phase of your life. That rings true for Camila Valenzuela. I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like that trauma is just in my body. Valenzuela is a doula originally from Chile. Four years ago, she went into early labor. On her way to the hospital, police pulled her over for driving with high beams on. She told him, I have an emergency. I'm pregnant. And he stops me. I need to see your driver's license and registration. So I'm scrambling, shaking, just remembering makes like my heartbeat go so fast. She was scared and her contractions intensified. She says he berated her, ticketed her, and insisted she keep the windows rolled down. It's frigid cold. I'm crying. My tears are freezing as they're coming down because it's so cold. 
Her baby survived. But this spring, Valenzuela nearly died giving birth to her second child. She blames her earlier encounter with police. Because my uterus had worked so hard, potentially from this previous trauma, I actually had an acute hemorrhage. Two months later, George Floyd died about a mile away. She's still haunted that he called out for his mother as he died. So, too, is researcher Rachel Hardiman. You know, when George Floyd yelled for his mama, it summoned all mothers. Hardiman stands just a few feet from where he was killed. It's just so painful. You know, this is why I do the work that I do, is so that every mom gets to have a healthy baby and have a good life. She's expanding her research nationally to keep digging into the connections between police violence and its impact on mothers and their babies. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News, Minneapolis. This the city of Chicago. Chicago. Well, 2020 has been a year of reckoning. One of the biggest, of course, racism in the U.S. Man, you get his nose is bleeding. Like, yeah, come on now. That's wrong, right there, with his feet on Look at his nose. Charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with murder in the second degree for the death of George Floyd. I believe the evidence available to us now supports the stronger charge of second degree murder. We have with COVID-19 things that we've seen with other diseases a clear-cut racial and ethnic disparity where African-Americans, Latinx, American Indians, Alaskan Natives, and Pacific Islanders suffer disproportionately. So we're talking about marijuana convictions. We're talking about things that are now legal. We realize the inequity of having those saddled with a marijuana conviction uh, for something that was now going to become legal was not fair and not just. Extreme racial disparities with COVID-19, the police killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, the list goes on. Well, Illinois, in an effort to create a more equitable state, just launched a $4.5 million racial healing initiative. The aim? To support organizations doing the work of racial healing. And this week, they announced their first round of grantees. With us now to discuss is Grace Ho. She's the secretary of the Illinois Department of Human Services. She's one of the officials leading the initiative. Secretary Ho, welcome to the program. Thank you, Justin. And in a moment, we'll hear from one of uh, the Racial Healing Initiative grantees, so stay tuned for that. Secretary Ho, tell us more about the initiative. What is Healing Illinois? Right. So thanks for having me on this morning. And so the Illinois Department of Human Services is really honored to be working with our partners at the Chicago Community Trust on this important endeavor. Um, as, as many of us know, healing is just one component of our work in our effort to become an anti-racist organization in our pursuit of equity and justice. And so at the state of Illinois, in partnership with the Chicago Community Trust, we are providing resources and opportunities for Illinois residents and communities to bridge our divides. And in doing this in really three ways. Number one, finding intentional spaces to truly listen to one another, Mm -hmm. learning about each other's stories, and seeing our humanity through that process. And number two, being open to understanding how structural racism has impacted the lives of our neighbors, you know, particularly black and brown communities, which has been startlingly apparent during COVID-19, the police killings, the election and the civil unrest. And of course, finally, number three, finding a path forward that makes sense for you and our communities and your neighbors to really heal. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about uh, finding shared spaces, listening and a path forward. 
That's that's the takeaway. So when we talk about the beginning part of that, what does that mean to find a, a shared space that we can have these conversations? In? Right. So, I mean, I think in the in the news stories that led into this segment, you know, we hear every day about how divisive we are as a society, right? Um, but we don't hear enough about how to cure that divisiveness, and this is just one way. Um, and we're really not telling communities and individuals how they need to embark on this process of healing, but we're really creating an intentional space and resourcing communities and neighborhoods across the state to say, we, if you want to take a step forward to bridging these divides with your neighbors, the people you work with, we want to provide resources for you to do that. Mm-hmm. So that could be done in a variety of ways, promoting dialogue, encouraging collaboration on community projects or community murals, facilitating learning, um, and then finally seeding a connection, really involving activities that can really bring us together. There's no one-size-fits-all. Um, what, what we want to do is we want to really recognize that it takes resources and intentionality to do that. It's not going to happen accidentally. Yeah, let's. Uh, I want to hear a little bit of Governor Pritzker, who uh, is obviously a part of this. He was talking about the initiative. Let's play a clip here. In order to truly fight the inequities and build a better, more inclusive Illinois, we have to be able to articulate the history of personal, institutional, and structural racism that got us here. And just as importantly, the modern iterations of personal, institutional, and structural racism that hold us back today. That's a huge part of this. The, the idea to be able to, he says, to, to articulate the history of personal, institutional, and structural racism that got us here. So expand on that. I mean, is that something that um, goes beyond just uh, uh, telling people about uh, real American history? Uh, does it go into curriculum? Does it go into uh, training at offices? What does that mean? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I, I would say that it's all of the above. And, you know, I'm not um, naive to think that this program is going to be able to cure all of what we need to cure in terms of understanding how racial equity has impacted our society, but rather it's one step. And we think that, you know, healing and conversations and dialogue and intentional conversations in terms of understanding how structural racism has impacted people that we know will open the door to other opportunities for learning, as you say, in schools, at work, in institutions, because even though we want to find a path forward, we have to understand kind of the historical inequities that has like really undergirded a lot of the institutions that we work on and in, as well as our society as a whole. Um, It's important to understand history as we move forward. Secretary Ho, who is Racial Healing Illinois for? I would say that uh, healing is for everyone. Um, You know, none of us in this day and age are immune Um, to the different, I think, narratives and rhetoric that tries to tear us apart. You know, whether you're in northern Illinois or southern Illinois or eastern or western parts of our state, I think we could all take a deep breath and and really would benefit from this space in in having a conversation with people around us um, to understand what their lived experiences are, what they've faced along the way, so that we can find a path forward and really be, you know, one Illinois. Mm-hmm. 
And what is this? What does success look like to you? What What is the? Uh, you go through this. You put the money forward. You 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 start to 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 push forward racial healing in the state. What does success look like? Well, I think the first thing that I would say, and and I have to say, at the beginning, we were a little unsure because this is a really, uh, I think, a pioneering effort. So the first is, is there a thirst for this? Do people want to engage in these types of discussions? And what we found is that there is a dramatic thirst for these types of activities. We've received more than 340 applications out of the gate. And so we can see that people want to have these conversations. So I think that that is definitely one success marker. Mm -hmm. And I think a second success marker is really taking a look at what comes from these different conversations across the state. And, and it's really telling us what the path forward is. I mean, obviously, we want to do no harm, and we want individuals who participate in these activities to feel fuller to feel more connected with the people that they're engaging with. And so there will be individual successes, and then we will take cues from what we learn to really determine what we need to do next as the state of Illinois. Yeah. Secretary Ho, we're going to hear from one of the grantees in just a moment, but, but who are the grantees in this first round? What kind of programs are being funded? Right. So there are, you know, as I said, there's no one size fits all, and I'm, I'm excited to hear and, and learn about the activities that our different grantees are going to be participating in across the state. And we will be documenting those on our website um, as well as in social media. But some of the Healing Illinois grantees include the Brushwood Center at Ryerson Woods in Waukegan. In Cook County, there's Chicago Metamorphosis Orchestra Project, Above and Beyond Family Recovery Center, um, there will be digital media projects. There will be conversations, storytelling, you know, community-based art exhibitions, you know, young people on college campuses engaging in, you know, service learning, as well as, you know, other conversations and convenings that really are trying to really understand the intersection of racism and other kind of issues that plague, you know, our society, mm -hmm. such as, you know, homelessness. Um, gender issues, et cetera. So I think you, we will see the whole gamut of healing activities through this initiative. Yeah. It's Grace Ho. She's the secretary of the Illinois Department of Human Services. She's one of the leaders on the Illinois Racial Healing Initiative. Secretary Ho, thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. So let's bring in one of the grantees, uh, one of the racial healing grantees, YWCA Metropolitan Chicago. The organization received a grant of $50,000 for racial healing activities from November 2020 through January 2021. YWCA CEO Dory McWhorter is with us now. Dory, welcome to the program. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And congratulations on the grant. What, what do you make of Illinois Racial Healing Initiative? How important is this effort to you? Because you, the YWCA has been doing this for a long time. So how important is it the state's getting on board? Well, we have been doing it a long time, and I think we welcome the opportunity to have other partners with us in the state of Illinois for them to recognize that this is an issue that impacts really all residents of the state is significant. Mm -hmm. So what are your plans for the funds? Well, we intend to do one major thing in addition to everything that we do every day, but specifically <laughs> with the funds, we're looking to really use these funds to recognize that workplace is really a key channel for us to create this type of impact. We have to acknowledge that folks wouldn't necessarily, well, we really want to target folks who wouldn't necessarily come to us to seek an understanding. So we want to leverage the platform that we have with them at work mm -hmm. to be able to have these types of conversations. And 
what is that? What does that look like? Is that a workshop? Is that a video? Does, does it fall into all like training and that kind of thing? Yeah, <laughs> all of the, it's definitely training and really trying to be highly interactive with the training. Mm-hmm. So we're going to focus on what, a, a few different trainings that we already have under our Inclusion Chicago umbrella and leverage this opportunity to expand that work. And so those are things like cultural humility and unconscious bias, as an example. Yeah, and and this kind of played out a little bit in the national. Uh, this played out in the national scene when. The president talked about his suspended critical race theory and, and, and the idea of, of, of anti-racist training, training uh, to government employees. So there is some pushback on this because uh, from his words, he says that, you know, it's, white, it's kind of uh, uh, changing history. But when you talk about this and you want to move this uh, initiative forward, especially at YWCA, how do you respond to something like that being said by someone like the president? Well, that was a very difficult thing to hear because ultimately it's almost, in my opinion, outlawing inclusion, which to me is not what this country stands for. And so we really feel that employers are already recognizing that building, retaining, and supporting diverse workforce is not only a business imperative, but a responsibility. Mm-hmm. And they and they recognize that having a collaborative workforce ultimately needs to also include people understanding Rachel racial and cultural differences. And so I think that ultimately it's beyond whatever a mandate could uh, dictate versus having people really understand how do we actually get the best performance is to truly collaborate and understand each other. Yeah. When it comes to racial healing right here in Illinois, what do you think is most needed in this space? What, what, What does the state need? All of it. <laughs> and, and, and that's Great what answer. I think that, yeah, I, th- well, I think the secretary said it best, right? There's no one solution because if it was, we would have already done it mm-hmm. by now, right? So what we recognize that it's in everything. It's at the individual and the personal level. We have internal work to do. We also have to look at systems and processes and institutions that really continue to uh, perpetuate racism and the impacts and how that actually plays out and manifests in our different communities and in our lives. So I think there's, there's no one right thing, but we clearly see there's some wrong things, but we know that we really do have to just engage where people are and continue to move the needle however we can. There's so much there. I mean, this is such a, it's really kind of unprecedented for a state to do this, to move forward, because you've always seen the private sector kind of uh, pick up the mantle when it comes to uh, uh, training and uh, anti-racism training and, and workshops. So are you are you encouraged that society is going this way? Are you encouraged that you're seeing states and, and, and other municipalities uh, take on this work? Absolutely, because I think it has the broader recognition that racism impacts us in so many different ways. And so absolutely, the private sector is motivated clearly because of the performance we talked about earlier. But I think the state recognizes that as a municipality, it sort of creates the environment where people live and work and play and do all of those things. So it also plays a role. Mm-hmm. And so I think if we all can do our part because we all touch people's lives in so many different ways, then we can actually see change. So I'm excited to to see the state take this on as an important issue and to think that we could be an anti-racist state is pretty significant and huge. Yeah, it really is. But uh, you, you got to hit the ground running here because you got the money now, November 2020, and it's through the 20, uh, 2021 January. So it's it's got to be it's time to move, right? Absolutely. And we are really using it to expand on the work that we have. So this gives us an opportunity to do more outreach and connect with other companies as well as continue to revamp and expand our training offerings. Yeah, well, you do great work at uh, YWCA Metropolitan Chicago. Dory McCorder is the CEO of YWCA Metropolitan Chicago. Uh, They are the recipient of one of the Illinois Racial Healing Initiative grants that was announced this week. We'll truly tweet out the link. 
to the Racial Healing Initiative on our Twitter at WBEC Reset. Dory, thanks so much for speaking with us, and congratulations again. Thank you. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Sunday, November 14, 2020. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, questions, observations. The number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943. Pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate few things to share before we get to listeners. Uh, we should be here tomorrow, uh, our global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, as always, your regular time, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, we'll check in with our folks, <clears throat> different parts of the world. Uh, number one, to get their thoughts on the election. And it looks like it's uh, pretty much finalized. Uh, see what they think, President-elect Joe Biden, President or Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Uh, see what folks think, uh, how it's been reported uh, overseas, uh, their reaction to potential vaccine for the Rona, uh, and how the restrictions and what have you are unfolding in the meantime. All of that uh, we'll chat tomorrow, Sunday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Global Sunday talk. Always good to remember global system on white supremacy, racism, not just a local phenomenon. Uh, Let's see. Also, we should be here on Tuesday. White guests only. White guests only. Uh, There is a book that came out not too long ago. White Fright. uh, Written by a white woman. In fact, let me see if I can give you the, the full title. Let's see. Folks, favorite subject matter. Yes, give you give you the full. All right, here we go. So this is a white woman, Jane Daly. She's in Illinois, by the way. Full title is White Fright, The Sexual Panic at the Heart of America's Racist History. One of the few books that actually does have racism or racist uh, in the title. But yes, Jane Daly, white woman should be here on Tuesday, normal time, 8 p.m. Eastern. 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, white guests only, white guests only. Let's see, a lengthy list before we get to the callers. I heard so much over the election. Certainly folks can share their thoughts on what has uh, transpired over the last week or so. Uh, I didn't see too much cutting a fool uh, in terms of like, 2008 cutting a fool when I say that I mean like people were out in the streets and running around or 2012 and 
crying and celebrating that type of thing, particularly victims of racism. I didn't see too much of that. I saw a little bit of it uh, in folks who were just, you know, we hate that racist Trump. We got to get rid of him. And thank goodness racist is gone a little bit, not too much. Either way, I don't know why there would be a lot of jubilation because we did just have a Negro in the White House and it didn't seem like that solved too many problems for black people. And in fact, when the Negro was in the White House, the vice, pre- the vice president was so... Yeah, I don't remember things being that spectacular or even that different uh, during the eight year period before we got to our current president. But we shall see. Anyway, the black misandry theme seemed to continue uh, throughout the election season. We had all the riffraff about Ice Cube and Kanye West and Lil Wayne and 50 Cent. Uh, All these hip hop artists are to blame and they're going to ruin the electoral college and get all the Negro males to vote for Donald Trump. We heard all of that before the election. And now we get to the other side and say, okay, we got president elect Biden and he comes out. Black people, black voters, you've always had my back and I'm going to have your back too. Now, if I got to sit through four years of that, like, please bring back the MAGA hats. I would rather have Donald Trump if I got to sit through four years of that, because I was like, wow, did he read the hate you give? Like, is that in the common parlance now? That's just, you know, we we work that in. I got your back, homie. You know, I got your back. Angie, Angie Thomas. That's right. That's right. (sighs) Not quite the worst book ever, formerly worst book ever, but it's up there. Anywho, so we got Biden, I got your back. You got my back. Yes, yes. And then the other folks, Kamala Harris and folks, black women, not black voters, just black women have been the backbone of the Democratic Party. This is the compensatory call in the only broadcast on the cows where I request if we could not use metaphors. I don't think the Democratic Party has a backbone. Now, I could say I was being cute. Double entendre. I was not. The Republican Party doesn't have a backbone. The Green Party doesn't have a backbone. What are you talking about? Now, if you can explain that metaphor, the black women voters being the backbone of the Democratic Party, perhaps you could explain to me why the Democratic platform is not more responsive. At least, forget the Negro male. Like, eh, kick them down. At least to black females. Why wouldn't that be the case if they're the backbone of the Democratic Party? Was Michelle Obama, when she was first lady, was she treated like the backbone? of the Democratic Party. I thought they called her a monkey at every opportunity. Maybe my memory is bad. That's been a long time. Anyway, so they go through. Yes, yes. The black woman voter is the backbone of the Democratic Party and we wouldn't get anywhere without her. And yes, now it's not in black people, which would be just as absurd and ridiculous if they were saying that black people are the backbone of the Democratic Party. But okay, whatever. It's black women. Now we get to the black male. Ugh. I don't know. 
know what we're going to do about these willy-head Negro males. We got, and they go get a panel. Now, I guess black female voters are a monolith, I guess. No black female voters voted for anyone other than Joe Biden, Kamala Harris in this uh, continental you or maybe I'll say in the United States. We'll put it that way because you can vote, too, in Puerto Rico, I think, in Hawaii and Alaska. So a little bit beyond the continental U.S., but in what they call the U.S., all of the black female voters supported Joe Biden. Monolith, the black males. Oh, we got some of the Negro males voted for Trump. Oh, unforgivable. Oh, burning hell. We got some of the Negro males even voted for the Green Party. This is how ignorant and stupid they are. Oh, and then we got some that voted for Trump. We already heard about them. They're no count. And like, I thought they just said we had the report last week. They said in Pennsylvania, swing state, huge one, help carry the day for Biden, team Biden. They said, man, we got a problem with engagement. We can't even get the black males to vote. You know, we've had such a, a problem, you know, former Mayor Rizzo and what have you. We locked up so many black males in Philadelphia. Mumia still can't get out and all that. Long live John Africa. Move. We got all these black males and Sue Africa uh, in greater confinement. So they're not voting and disengaged. We just can't get the black male to vote in Pennsylvania. We have to come up with some new strategies. That's what they said just last week in Pennsylvania, in Florida. They said the same thing. Oh, man. Poor Andrew Gillum, just like the rest of these no count black males out here drinking, partying, raping folks. Got all these felons, haven't paid their fines, so we're not going to let them vote. Sorry. Coming from the governor. DeSantis. That's what they said in Florida. So it's not, oh man, black males aren't able to vote, or maybe they've been locked up, or maybe they don't want to. Ah, they're no count, shiftless, don't know what to do, just ignorant. Ugh, what to do with the black male voter? But the black female, oh yes, the backbone of the Democratic Party. What type of narrative is that? <laughs> and again, all of this is in the context of white supremacy racism. I mean, do we count all of the black female voters? Really? Like they counted all the black female votes in 2000 when they voted 10,000% for who was it uh, back then? Uh, Clinton's VP, Al Gore. They went 2,000% for Al Gore back in 2000. That's what happened. And they counted all those votes, of course, because, you know, that's the backbone of the Democratic Party. Get out of here. Cynthia McKinney, six term congresswoman in Georgia. She was treated like the backbone of of the Democratic Party. They're hooting and hollering about Georgia is purple now and Stacey Abrams and the long history of black female political involvement. Did they mention Cynthia McKinney and all that? She's still alive, isn't she? She's not rolling over in her grave or anything. Three-time guest on the cows. Did they mention her and former presidential candidate? Was she treated like this? Anyway, the context for all of that is the backbone, if you want to call it that, of the Democratic Party the Republican Party, the Green Party, any other party names that they come up with continues to be the system of white supremacy, not black females, not black males, not black children or anybody else. Long live Al Sharpton. Now, the black misandry continues. So we get done with the black voters as ah, shiftless and easy and man. Okay. So we push through all that and then we get to the end and they do all the talking about the Rona and we got the vaccine. What's the rollout going to look like? And it's still ravaging all these areas. 
And they say, oh, yeah, health initiatives, Team Biden, they're going to talk, deal with health disparities. You know, we're going to unveil a new package to combat the Rona and going to take this seriously. And they say, wow, we got cities in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You know, we're working on health initiatives to combat how racism is ravaging the health of black people. All right. Nothing incorrect about that. Uh, If they say they want to roll out these programs, we'll see if they'll be effective. I don't think you will really impact the health of black people until we permanently replace white supremacy with justice. But okay. Uh, And then they go in the dialogue about all that. And they talk about how uh, police violence and what have you impacts black people. All well and good. They're doing this program in Chicago uh, as well. Uh, or a similar type program in Chicago as well. Uh, I said, wow, they have the parents on. They're talking about uh, not wanting to have a son, a black son. I thought we had black male privilege, didn't we? (laughs) What they said, you know, we have all these black males who come out and get all this privilege and power and get confused and abandon black people and marry white women and vote for President Trump. Of course, you'd want to have black sons, right? No, you have parents rejoicing. Thank goodness we don't have a black son. Now, I would have been, I guess, maybe surprised, appalled, felt some type of way about it. My third, my first thought was, I've heard all this before. Uh, I almost did a rewind back to the summer of 2014. We didn't even have Trump to complain about or blame then as president. Uh, 2014, when they had all the riffraff in Ferguson, Missouri, they were doing the out on the street interviews. So as the quick trip was smoldering, they went out and did the interviews and they found uh, a black uh, female. And she said, I don't have any children. I don't want to have a son who wants to have a black son in the midst of all this. No way. Remember that one. And I've heard that same sort of sentiment a bunch. I also thought at the same time. Now uh, I don't exactly think it would be cause to celebrate that we're having a black female child. I don't exactly think Brianna Taylor Brianna Taylor, Sandra Bland, even Michelle Obama. I don't exactly think they're treated that well either. In fact, I was playing Richard Williams before we went live. That scene is in his book. I thought of that one pretty immediately as well. Black and white, the way I see it, Richard Williams autobiography. He talks about that white man tried to urinate on him uh, when he was in the civil rights movement in the South, so-called. Uh, But he also talked about when I believe it was either Venus or Serena. He has several children. But when one of them was born, being in the hospital and standing outside and said, oh, man, I think they might end up calling Serena a nigger, which they have or Venus, which they have. Uh, And I can't stand it. Oh, my God, I'm about to bring a black child in the world that they're going to be victimized and terrorized. They might try and piss on them the way that they did me and all the rest of it. And he said he was screaming and going crazy. His wife at the time, he said he went back in to comfort her being with his wife during the pregnancy. Bravo. Said he went back in to be with her and comfort her. And she said, oh, my God, did you hear that fool out in the hallway? Somebody was yelling and just acting a fool. He said, I don't know who it was. I don't know what's going on up here. But I remember that scene as well. So it's not exactly like you get to celebrate, but I mean, wow, I got to hear black male privilege. And what did uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters say? Victim of racism. It is uh, reprehensible. It's shameful. It's unforgivable that a black male who would vote for Trump. She didn't even say black voters, just black males. And then they ended with, man, I got to celebrate and do the watermelon jig because we're not giving birth to a black son. Praise the Lord. 
system of white supremacy and their messaging is wow. The black misandry constant, constant. Incidentally, I know we do have some listeners who have pushed back for years against those reports about how racism, white supremacy and other health impacts uh, or other health defects and health problems adversely impact black health directly or indirectly related to racism. I know we have a number of listeners who said, I do not believe that. I think those numbers are fabricated. I don't think uh, black infant mortality rates are particularly high or significantly different from white people. Same thing for black uh, mothers. I don't think their rates are spectacularly different. That is not my view. Uh, As I said, I don't have children, but I do know black mothers and many of the black mothers that I know have gone through the exact same experiences uh, being terrorized, mistreated while they were pregnant, that having an impact on their pregnancy, even if they don't experience like an acute incident, as the black mother mentioned in the clip where she said she was stopped by a race soldier on her way to give birth. I mean, wow. Uh, But even if it's not that acute, just the other impact, (laughs) Flint, the water contamination. I mean, you could just stack them up. We've had reports before about black females who are pregnant and the mistreatment that they get on the job. I mean, they get lots of different ways uh, that you're going to be impacted. Uh, I've just seen way too much evidence and medical apartheid. Some of the other folks, I think all of the black medical professionals that we spoke to unanimously have said, oh, yeah, I agree. I think all of that is legitimate and probably worse than what is being purported. But I do know we have some listeners who think that those type of reports are bogus about maternal mortality for black people, infant mortality. They think black people don't have those problems. We shall see. Uh, You heard the BBC segment about the potential COVID-19 vaccine. I didn't see as much information about that stateside. I did see some. Uh, but not as much. I mean, we still got a lot with the election and, and all that, but it didn't seem like it was an enormous deal here in the States or it didn't seem like it was something where, hey, you know, let's start working on protocols and what have you. And this is what the procedure is going to look like and everybody get ready. And this is the timetable for for when it's going to be available. I didn't you know, really see things like that. I saw many more reports about, oh, wow, surge in COVID-19 cases, uh, increase in hospital usage, that sort of thing. So I'm not sure how long this is going to take, if it'll be effective. I guess that's something folks can share if you're hearing uh, about the potential for a vaccine in your area or what. Uh, when it becomes accessible. If you're hearing reports about that, that would be uh, grand. And or if you have thoughts, I know I did see reports and I'd seen this all year long, even before they started talking about uh, Pfizer's discovery or report this week uh, in saying that there were lots and lots of white people who were not going to take the vaccine. I have also seen reports of uh, additionally where they've said that black people, they're skeptical of uh health officials, the coon man, Ralph Northam, governor of Virginia. They're skeptical for lots of reasons, Henrietta Lacks and such, uh, and so that they're not going to take these vaccines. But I mean, you've had white people out protesting in the streets and they've had lots of reports where they haven't said white people, but they have they have said uh, rural areas might be resistant. Those type of coded words where generally when they use that type of language, they're talking about like Appalachia white people who are you know didn't move to the burbs and such who stayed out have more property and gun owning super defiant about the runner regulations and that sort of thing um 
yeah, they've said that those folks also, in addition to a lot of other white people, I mean, they've had large groups in California and other places where I don't think it's considered rural who've also said they're not doing the vaccine either. So that'll probably be something else that people to run around in the streets uh, with guns and argue and gripe about too. Uh, anywho, uh, the number again is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. We did have a question from workplace racism yesterday a parent wrote in black mom she wrote in she has a five-year-old son uh he has lots of black male privilege he voted for trump too she said her son uh was terrorized by his teacher in lots of ways i can't get into all the detail of that now it's in the archives but the main gist she asked a question about uh protecting your children from having white friends right if they go to school type of a thing uh, and she said, if you have any advice, uh, do you just talk to them directly? Uh, do you do it by osmosis? Put that in quotes. That was, yeah. Anyway, do you do it by osmosis? Do you do it directly? Do you flat out uh, put a prohibition, you know, no white friends? Uh, how do you deal with that? We had some folks, retired firefighter and others who shared on that yesterday. But if we have any uh, parents uh, who'd like to give any insights, uh, your children, if you have children, uh, and white friends, uh, how you reckon with that? Do you allow it? Uh, particularly at such a young age, cause five is like, wow, that's <laughs> so young, but we have any thoughts on that. I'm sure, uh, some of our parents would be appreciative, uh, star six, one, if you have thoughts, uh, let's get to the line. First few folks who dialed in. If you have thoughts to share questions, observations, line should be open. Proceed. Hi, Gus. Greetings, B in Toronto. Good to hear from you. Hi, greetings to you, callers and listeners. Um, so I just wanted to mention two things. Um, and uh, one is, a, a, the first part is a warning, uh, because while I was waiting um, and, and listening um, to your commentary, I was hearing gunshots outside. And um, it's been happening more and more frequently um, as of late in Toronto, at different parts of Toronto. And um, the thing that has been happening here is that um, because we're in, in um, red category or control category, um, the government has been allowing uh, the push of more alcoholism or alcohol sales and push for um, a cannabis. Oftentimes, um, uh, during the lockdowns, the um, stores that are often available are those that sell the alcohol and those that are uh, cannabis uh, shops. So uh, as a warning, I would strongly suggest, and I'm sure you've heard this before, and you've mentioned it as well, um, to stay indoors after night, um, after nightfall, to um, just to be very aware um, that there are more people um, that are drinking, there are more people that are using cannabis, so impaired driving um, will most likely increase um, erratic behavior as a result of um, of the uh, 
the inebriated or impaired mind is, is also um, uh, something else to consider. Just be very mindful of your environment. Uh, the gunshots seem to have ceased. Uh, they're definitely north of us, but keeping aware of it. Um, so, yes, please be careful. So that's the, per- the first part. Um, uh, and to extend that to family, friends. The second part is in terms of the workplace, uh, neutralizing workplace racism. Uh, yesterday, I didn't answer the question. Um, so I was going to answer it today because I wanted to get some more research on some events uh, that were happening. Um, I'm pretty sure some of the listeners and callers are aware of the, uh, and I hope I'm saying his the young man's or young child's uh, name correctly, uh, Kwawan Charles, um, where uh, he had left with a, a 17-year-old white uh, male um, close, who's closer to her adulthood, as well as the white male's mother. And the child was never seen alive again after that. The white male and the white mother are nowhere to be found. I'm surprised that there was no posting. Um, There's also the other incident where there was another um, young boy around 14, 15 years old uh, who went with a group of white friends, never to be heard from again, um, found in the water. Um, there were some stories that were saying that he was able to swim really well. There are other stories um, that say that he wasn't able to swim very well. Um, there's just been too many stories of um, of black children, black youth, um, and even uh, black adults going with white people and just not being able to return home to their loved ones. So... Um, Definitely, if it's a possibility to show their children, um, you, you don't really need to to say anything or, or feel as if you're saying something that is going to be um, uh, quote unquote negative. You're showing the truth, um, as you've often mentioned, Gus. Uh, based on what New- Mr. Neely Fuller Jr. says, white people will often show you better than we can tell you. So you might as well uh, show them the truth um, to for their own survival um, of these stories of what's happening. Um, with uh, Kwawan uh, Charles, they're saying that he just drowned, but he's looking like the Emmett Till picture. Um, if you've seen uh, the picture of the autopsy uh, and the mum uh, had allowed... Uh, the picture uh, to occur because to to show what's happened to her child. Um, That's very reminiscent to what happened um, with the disfigurement of um, Emmett Till, Um, although uh, may not be under similar circumstances, but the fact that it's through white supremacy, um, it's a high concern. And they didn't even, the police didn't even do an Ember Alert. Uh, So... um, just please be careful and please tell your children um, uh, the dangers of um, of just traveling with white people. Um, my offspring is an adult, and I still remind him to not just go off with white people, and he hasn't. Um, but just as a reminder, a precaution, just do not go off with just white people because they often have nefarious means and you don't know the reason or what they have planned for you. Uh, I myself don't even just go off with white people anywhere. Um, in fact, I, I 
stay away from them as much as possible. I'm only around them as as needed. Um, and if that means just to get a resource and go, I, I don't even stay around them. So thank you, and I leave the line. <clears throat> much obliged. Be in Toronto. Hope you are doing better, taking great care of yourself, getting great rest. Um, some of the folks I think that was echoed yesterday, we had a uh, impromptu uh, poetry recital. Uh, if you want your child to know osmosis is not the way to go. Be direct about racism. And it was echoing uh, the sentiment of just tell the truth. That was what I said. I think Mr. Fuller too. These type of reports come up all the time. And I mean, that is horrendous uh, to think like, wow, is Kawan Charles all the time? Yes. All the time. I even forgot. I was trying to think of the case. Uh, ABC news. They did. It was either, I think it was 2020. This was like five years ago, maybe more than that. Six years ago. They did. Obama was in the White House back when good times Uh, and they had a teenage black child. This is a black male. He was like 17, just a little bit older than uh, Kawan Charles. And he went out with his white friends. They went to a party. Alcohol was involved. They left the party. They were going to go home and they were in the suburbs. I think this was in Virginia. Uh, And they the black child went to the wrong house all of the houses look kind of the same and so he went in the wrong house thinking he was at his house intoxicated went to the wrong house it was a white homeowner you know already know the story we gun rights in the commonwealth pulled out his gun no more black child and totally legit or killing can't even say murder totally lawful killing unlawful entrance it's late at night he's not even supposed to be in the house what they call it the castle doctrine oh well so sad moral of the story they say uh, underage drinking blah, blah 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 we said when we talked about this incident moral is white friends we even had some of our listeners who speculated it could have been a little practical joke like they his white friends maybe didn't intend to kill him but ah ha ha we'll put him in the wrong house oh it'll be so funny and then he ends up dead lots of dangers with having white friends but just sharing those type of reports uh to show the danger with kawan charles this is recent uh the family of the 15 year old boy found dead in a cane field near Laurelville is in search of answers related to the cause of the beloved teen's death. The family says they were told Kawan Charles drowned, but now tell KATC they're having an independent autopsy performed as they suspect foul play may have been involved. According to the boy's family, Charles was reported missing on Friday, October 30 in Baldwin after he left his home without permission, accompanied by two individuals, a 17 year old friend and the friend's mother. Charles was then found dead November 3 in a rural area off Ed Broussard Road near Laurelville. They they still haven't shown us where Kawan was or what creek he was found at. We can't even go and put a cross where he was found at. They're being very discreet, Selena Charles, the spokesperson for the family, said. Selena Charles says one reason she and her family... Members don't believe Kawan drowned is a graphic photo of Kawan's body circulating on social media. 
his face is disfigured so there's something so there's some explaining that needs to be done there his face is disfigured we have no answers but we're going to get them I'll stop there it goes on but yeah this is the type of thing I would probably not allow for this to be osmosis you can even go on up you know because none of us really qualify as adults you can even go all the way up the reason they have the uh, hate crime law in the US uh, they will say Matt Shepard poor Matt Shepard got all these hate crimes and what have you the Matt Shepard hate crime that is not true and we did a whole book about that there is a whole book about that the book of Matt but anyway it is the Matt Shepard James Bird Jr. hate crime law but they leave his name off who cares about black males but he also died going to kick it with his white friend I would just point that sort of thing out long history of the danger of white homies Uh, other folks who dialed in if you have a hand up commentary to share proceed can I be heard heard? are you hey I know Gus call us uh, New Jersey. Um, this election cycle, uh, it, it was man, it, it was kind of hard to bear. It, it was really the misandry um, that uh, really irritated me. And um, oh, before I forget, we can add a list of um, dangerous white friends: the uh, black male who was killed in Greece, beaten to death. Um, while he was in a company of uh, white friends. Um, but it, it just seemed like it's now was like a prerequisite for um, other victims to also promote misandry, um, whether it's on radio stations. And it, and it seems to be um, not to single out the Democrats, but um Victims that's that's uh, affiliated with the uh, the Democratic Party. Um, it upset me because um, as I speak, uh, mother, um, black female, uh, two black parents voted for Donald Trump. <laughs> so you know, so I'm just kind of like you know, so I personally know a black female who voted for Donald Trump. Um, I voted third party. I was, um, you know, I didn't mind really discussing it with other, uh, black people, other victims. And it was, oh, you're giving your vote to Trump. I said, that doesn't logically make sense. I'm giving my vote to who I voted for. Now, the supporters of Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it's on, you know, it's on them to vote for those two candidates if they want him to win i didn't support neither one it's just very interesting even with you add that black males um you know are overrepresented in the prison system you have states that don't allow black males with prison prison records to vote but i mean it, it couldn't be the um the crime bill that you know that targeted you know, mainly black males. Like, so, you know, we're not that intelligent to, um, you know, to just basically say like, hey, you know, this is a guy who, you know, who targeted black males through legislation, you know? 
Um, it was frustrating to talking to other black victims that is that that is very sympathetic, you know, and they say things. You know, it just seems like this election cycle, like all logic was just void, like no logic, no critical thinking. It was just kind of like voting, like it was just a team sport. I heard people talking about Democrats were speaking as if they were members of the DNC. Like they would say things like we, uh, you know, a lot of people, I, I can't recall them attending any Democrat conventions. I don't know if they were um, any of the um, any any Democrat committees, but they say we. Um, I'm definitely not looking forward to this four years. Um, I said I wasn't pro-Trump, not pro-Biden, but this election cycle proved to me that the um, the confusion is deeper than I believe because I've seen people that questioned um, both Trump and Biden, but once Biden got the nomination, they just... Um, they were celebratory and, you know, just, you know, his record didn't mean anything anymore. And it was just, you know, Trump is out the door and I'm just, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm you know, so it, that confused me. Um, Maxine Waters kind of um, also uh, disturbed me when she spoke about black males. And if I'm not mistaken, um, 60% of the homeless population I believe in her district are black males. <laughs> so, um, man, it, it, it's, it's, it's been very, it's been just, just very a long and drawn out uh, process. But um, I do know that, you know, we all are victims. So I, I, I was just disturbed. I wasn't angry. Um, other family members argue with my mother for voting for Trump. I'm thinking, I said, listen, you know, y'all arguing over two racist white men. But I, I explained to my mother, I said, listen, I'm not angry if you vote or you don't vote. But what I don't want you to do is argue with your sisters and your mothers over two complete strangers. And, you know, so she got on the phone and apologized to her sister. So there was some conflict resolution, um, on my, you know, within um, this election cycle in my family. But thus, I mean, yes, we, we, we are very confused as a collective. Very. I yield there. Hmm. Every day, I understand more and more. Neely Fuller Jr., page one of every book. If you don't understand racism, white supremacy, what it is, and how it works, everything else will confuse you. Incidentally, Man, I am doing right poorly, and it has been awful, although I am making salted pecan cinnamon buns, so things will improve. But that is the best thing I have heard this week, like uh, minimizing conflict with other victims of racism should be a high priority. I mean, 
no name calling, right? Like that's supposed to be in my view, if you are a little bit less confused about white supremacy, racism, that should be demonstrated and you really giving your best effort consistently to minimize conflict with other victims of racism, especially black people. Don't see, I do not see that happen very often at all. In fact, I see the exact opposite where it's coon this and Sambo that and anyway, but that is phenomenal uh, to just be able to step in and, you know, Hey, we can sit around and squabble for the next four years. But I mean, really like (laughs) attempted family. Come on. I can be able to get a reconciliation. That is the reconciliation. Like they can talk all that nonsense about racial reconciliation. Like we got enough conflict just with victims of racism and other black people. We can work on reconciling that. That is spectacular. A plus I'm sure Dr. Welsing would. (laughs) Wow. That is excellent illustration of black self-respect right there. Bravo caller in New Jersey. Uh, I think that was Mo and Dallas who spoke up simultaneously. Proceed. Or no, that was Rob in California. I got Thank confused. You. That was it was me. Oh, okay. Oof. It was Mo. Right, but Rob lives in California. Uh, greetings, guys. Uh, greetings, listeners. Thank you again for the program. Um, uh, my, I have uh, something to add on. Um, to the previous caller's sentiment about politics, I have a, a, a close friend of mine. Uh, I want to say she's been my friend for more than half my life. And um, throughout uh, the course of our friendship, I've given her, you know, um, recommendations, you know, just using logic and common sense. Um, and not not much that she's received um, uh, to get, kind of personal, I actually gave her like, you know, tips on how to operate in her social life and how to, you know, navigate, uh, you know, successfully. And, you know, she didn't trust me. Um, and she did seek a therapist. Um, and the therapist actually gave her the same advice I did, you know, and I kind of, you know, use that as like a, a measuring stick. Like I don't have a degree in therapy, you know, um, I kind of know things and I do have your best intentions at heart and I'm not charging you for the information I'm giving you. And she kind of understood that um, when it comes to politics, she just simply said she doesn't trust me. And I don't understand. I mean, we share recipes. We share like we both have daughters that we're raising, you know, a single parent. So like we connect on many, many, many different levels. And she's a strictly platonic friend. Like, and I've always been, like, uh, the, the tried to be uh, a positive friend in her life. And it's just confusing because I'm like, why wouldn't I have your best intentions in mind when it comes to a political recommendation? And her response is, you're not a female. You don't understand me. Um, so that's just odd. Um, so Kamala Harris, um, receiving all of this praise as being a black woman. I have a question for that. Why isn't she president? Um, Last year, she was uh, campaigning for 
for the uh, for, for presidency, and she got excuse the metaphor blown out of the water for for her for her you know um, for, for her actions and her job you know and 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 people understood then I thought um, and now she's receiving all this praise during that run she um, spoke against Joe Biden as, uh, Joe Biden as being a racist for his views on busing you know uh, stating that she was one of the black kids that he didn't want to go to school with his children uh, she also sided with his accusers his multiple accusers um, that were white women complaining of his alleged sexual misconduct and are these things untrue or do they not matter now i was just I, i'm not sure um and what is her culture um, i heard the, the article um speaking about Kamala Harris's culture and then referencing her side eyes and Timberland boots. Like, is that black female culture just side eyeing and converse? Like, like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I consider that bovine feces. Um, to the, uh, to the segment with the three different voters. Um, I, I, the, the question that the reporter asked, the individual that um, that I think he voted for the Green Party. What is the nothing the Democrats didn't give you? That that is a very confusing question to ask a victim of racism. I don't I don't understand that question. What is the nothing that that you didn't receive? I received nothing. Like how 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 do you define nothing? other than nothing it's not a thing um the uh the older gentleman who voted for trump actually made sense you know he had he actually had um you know solid positions you know stating that he uh believed that trump donated money to to those historically black colleges and universities for years to come i thought that was a very very interesting, you know, position to have. And it's not one that I've seen many uh, black Trump supporters, um, uh, you know, divulge. Or, and I don't even know if they're aware of it or not. I, I'm not certain if it's true or not, but I thought that was very interesting. Um, the black health care providers held at gunpoint um, for uh, taking a, a person's blood pressure. I think that is... Uh, a prime example of why you shouldn't help white people. Uh, helping them uh, has the potential of ending their life. You know, um, especially if you're going to help them, then call the cops. Like if you're just going to call nine one one, just call nine one one and 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 leave, or 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 just tell someone else to call nine one one or or something. Um, um, the black parent, black parents not wanting to have black sons. I think that speaks directly to uh, the, well, I think it partially speaks to the effeminization of young black males. Um, I see uh, black, I, I want to say black boys not allowing, not being allowed to be um, themselves or boys or, or that 
that inkling of manhood being being um, suppressed, in my opinion. Um, there's not very much, uh, in my experience and what I've seen, there not enough young black men are allowed to express themselves as such. Um, and I think that has a tremendous impact on their growth and development. And it also uh, has impact on on the way that they function in society. And I don't think that uh, parents are doing this purposely. I think it's done out of fear, but like in the long run, it does damage the child. Um, I do I also have a reference uh, for the uh, for an article to share with uh, children. I believe this was in 2018. Um, there was a young black boy, he was 14, and I think Rochester Hills, Michigan, and uh, he was lost on his way to school, and he knocked on a, uh, a neighbor's door. He was new to the neighborhood. His mom actually moved him um, out of an urban community into a majority white community, I believe, and he was lost. He knocked on a door, and the, the man, his name was, I think, Jeffrey, I forget his last name. I'll see if I can. Um, uh, anyway, uh, uh, Jeffrey Zing, Zingler, Ziegler? Um, Jeffrey Ziegler, and this man uh, pulled a shotgun on this young boy and shot at him. You know, so that that's an article that parents can share to their children. Like it's not safe to to even be lost, like being a black male or a black child. Also, I think I remember uh, a case again, I think it was Deer Path, Michigan, Dearborn, Michigan, Deer something, Michigan, of a black female who knocked on uh, someone's door late at night. I think she was lost or her car had broken down and she was murdered on their front porch. um, She was, uh, I think she was like a college student. Um, so there, there are plenty of, uh, there's plenty of information you can just expose children to and, and, and ask them what do they think of it or why, or just tell them this happened. You know, you don't even have to ask if they think this happened. Like, like, do you think people deserve to, does anyone think that people deserve to get murdered for being lost or being stranded? Um, and what would you do if you got lost or you were stranded? Um, that's all I have for Nambi, my life. Much obliged, Mo in Dallas. Bugs and barbecues, brother. Bugs and barbecue. Uh, Take out the trash, too. <laughs> the bugs, barbecue, and rubbish. There we go. Uh, Rob in California. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings to us, callers and listeners. Um, so today is the uh, first day that, uh, so I guess it's nationwide, but, um, you know, working in the restaurant today was the first day that we had the uh, only outside dining. And I called in yesterday and said that I suspected that um, by me being in the Asian restaurant, by the 
quote unquote Asian community being um, together. I don't know if that's a metaphor or not. Um, I suspected that <clears throat> the flow of business would be busy today, uh, a lot of business, and my observation was correct. Um, surprisingly, yesterday, um, people anticipated that the flow of business was going to be busy, and it was um, the opposite. And so today, even with the um, occupancy, how uh, I want to say, even with um, the restaurant being only able to seat about 30 tables, it was still about a hour and 45 minute wait list to get seated outside. Um, and that, you know, seeing that was, um, was pretty interesting. Um, and I stated yesterday that I was concerned, you know, like how my hours is going to look. Um, my out, like, so the schedule came out today. My hours don't look the best, but they are not the worst. And being in this COVID, being under the COVID guidelines and um, with restaurants only being able to operate outside dining, being in this situation, being the only black male, it is a very interesting position to have at this point. Um, and I'll leave it right there. Thank you for taking my call. Hmm. I just, <clears throat> even still, he's in California, uh, Southern California, uh, where you know, hey, uh, never rains. Uh, and as he said, maybe 50s, you know, so. Uh, but if you're in an environment where you're accustomed to 80s and 90s, 50s is pretty cold. So, yeah, it will be, uh, particularly the next, probably the next two, three months until probably February or so, uh, when it starts to warm back up and it's consistently upper 60s, 70s, so it's no big deal anymore. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure that's going to have a huge impact. We'll be talking about that uh, on workplace racism uh, for the next few months. Uh, people that are in those types of industries where it may have been possible to be outside uh, easily when it was warmer. But you know, I know here in Seattle, it's been rainy and 40s and, you know, I'm sure 30s will be coming shortly. So it is not going to be as appealing uh, and or possible to be outside. I'm, I'm sorry. One more, one one more observation. I'm so sorry to interrupt. Um, so, um, adding to what you just brought up in Seattle, the rain aspect. So, the restaurant on weekends opens at 11 
um, a.m. And so <clears throat> I came in at 12 today. And so I was speaking with one of my coworkers, and I asked her what time she came in. She said that she came in about 10. And so now with the outside dining, they are adding heaters, and they are putting um, a tent up. And so I asked my coworker, I said, hey, uh, you came in at 10, because they were still putting the tent up when I came in at 12 o'clock. But at the same time, they were seating people. People were being seated. And I'm talking about it was full. While they while they working and putting the tent up, right? And people just kind of like, Acting like they don't even see the workers. It was amazing. I was just, I was, I'm just kind of just, I'm just taking it all in. And uh, she was like, uh, you know, the the workers got here before I, you know, they they was here before I got here. You know, so um, last observation, I was watching the news this morning, and so uh, they were. Uh, it was a story about. Uh, restaurants having to operate outside and doing the outside dining and things like that. So it was a particular restaurant that was next to a neighbor that they engaged in conversation about the neighbor donating the heater, uh, outside heater to the restaurant. And then they posted on Twitter and uh, other people start posting it, and I guess it went viral, quote unquote. And so now in the city of San Diego, you have uh, people of the community, neighbors of the restaurants, donating their heaters uh, if they have outside heaters to the businesses that have to operate outside. Thank you. I have seen quite a bit of that. The donations for heaters. They have that thing here. Uh, they have that sort of thing here as well. Um, they have a number uh, of businesses where they'll have like a big fireplace set up outside uh, and the heaters, as he mentioned, and some sort of uh, covering or uh, a tent. Uh, I don't eat outside or eat at restaurants very often anyway, but you could take a day. Let me see. It's, uh, weather here right now I think it's like 40 something uh, 40 degrees and rainy I do not care uh, if you're going to have a heater set up outside a tent I am cool like you could have the best vegan tiramisu and all kinds of things I'm good like uh, I will be right here salted caramel pecan cinnamon rolls loving it uh, workplace racism Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we talk exactly about what Rob just mentioned. Uh, other folks uh, who dialed in with a hand up, if we have missed you totally, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings to everyone. Uh, I'll uh, first start off by saying... Uh, I think it was day before yesterday I was informed uh, kind of like indirectly because I was contacting uh, non-white, this non-white black bell for uh, a conversation 
on something and he informed me of a uh, former uh, uh, young person that I uh, coached uh, his attempted father passed away uh, and uh, maybe about five days ago and his funeral would be what is to be today and uh, so I have you know contact with the person and uh, and I sent him a uh, a text uh, basically uh, confirming uh, his dad uh, being uh, in his attempts to uh, father his children. And uh, it's like I heard Mr. Fuller say, the results is what really is the the, uh, concern. And uh, as far as under the global system of race and white supremacy, uh, he, uh, I would give him, uh, you know, some kudos, the the dad, on what he... uh, what he uh, was attempting to instill into his children. Uh, it's, uh, I know about three of them that I uh, coached, and uh, he he acknowledged uh, the uh, the message. Uh, I also I also attempted to go to the funeral uh, today, uh, uh, intermittently to leave from, you know, it the beat uh, the uh, uh, the uh, DCS program to actually go back to the program. Uh, I took as much of a quote unquote Baptist Christian funeral as I can take and uh, left just before the eulogy was being done. I'm not, I'm not a fan of funerals uh, at all, uh, but nevertheless, I did show up there for a little while uh, to go back to the program uh, what we have been uh, presently uh, doing today with uh, the teenagers is the question of the day was, what career are you interested in? And what we have been trying to do, we're not going to go a step forward until we get we get an accomplishment on to them to be able to confidently speak on themselves and their aspirations. We're not going to move from that subject until we get satisfaction, satisfactory to where that person can hold their head up, look directly into the eyes of other people, and have a volume to whereas they can be heard and they can be uh, concise and clear on what they are explaining to other people about themselves. Uh, And uh, so uh, it was some improvement. It was some improvement today uh, as, uh, you know, uh, I mean, we're talking about we only see each other once a week and you can see, you can see monumental improvement that's going on uh, with these, uh, these young people. Uh, Uh, now what we are striving to do is to to uh, challenge them to have details of how they're going to go about pursuing that career interest. 
I mean, it's very important to know on what you want to do with your life. But it's also equally important, if not more important, to know on how you're going to go about pursuing that. Uh, of course, there was a lot of, I want to, want to be an NBA player or NFL player. And what I do, I bring, the, I bring out the, the, the statistics in a way that they can understand. Uh, I, uh, I, I, for instance, with uh, the NBA, I would say, well, you know, uh, the average height of a National Basketball Association player is somewhere around six foot six. That's the average height, somewhere around six foot six, six foot seven. Uh, if you have gotten to high school level and you have not been offered to show up to any camps, national camps and whatnot, you'll probably need to start seriously thinking about something else to do, you know, <laughs> and because most of those guys do not even go past their freshman year of college. There are the few guys who, as you know, Gus, have not, didn't even go to college, and they, all of them know LeBron James, you know, as far as they're concerned. But, uh, you know, just, just some ideas in mind so they, they would have – not at the top of their list, a professional entertainer slash gladiator, but something, some sort of skill that they can pursue and it'd be helpful to themselves and also others. And uh, that's basically what we uh, have been working on. And we're going to stay on that. We're going to stay on those points. Also self-respect. The, how do you illustrate self-respect? We're talking about yourself. There's no wrong answer. How do you illustrate when you say the word self-respect and, uh, you know, those type of things. And uh, so that's what we're dealing with, with the, uh, the teenagers. And that's all I say. Thank you. Wow. Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter in Florida. Awesome job uh, with the young folks and, Black self-respect. We have some older victims of racism, myself included, who, you know, probably need a good lecture or three on how you demonstrate black self-respect. And speaking up, that is, you know, an important one as well. Eye contact, lots of volume. We don't have to have lots of volume, but I mean, speak so that you can be heard and speak clearly. Black self-respect. Very, very important not being mealy mouth came up with that word reading the uh, book study anywho uh, black self-respect right there from retired firefighter two callers different illustrations of black self-respect today uh, other folks we missed totally the number again is 720-716-7300 the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate other folks uh if you have not shared have comments you want to or questions uh observations line should be open proceed
why folks are, I guess, formulating their thoughts, questions, whatever else. Uh, We will be here for the Global Sunday Talk uh, on Sunday, tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. Uh, We'll discuss the election. I don't know if they have all that misandry in the coverage, black misandry in the coverage uh, of the election. I guess we'll have to see, um, you know, in terms of how they, yeah, we'll have to ask about all that tomorrow, but that'll be then. And then, uh, as I said, we'll be here on Tuesday uh, for Jane Daly, white fright, the sexual panic at the heart of America's racist history I have to ask uh, who is she talking about when she says America but I mean the title is White Fright so it's kind of implied I will have more to share about this book as we encroach on uh, Tuesday White Guests Only let's see uh, folks still getting their thoughts together we have about a half hour left in the broadcast so hopefully folks won't wait till the last five minutes and then Decide they have to hop in to share a thought or three. Hey Gus, um, can I ask something while people uh, get their thoughts together? I reckon it's caller in New Jersey. Yeah, um, Mo in Dallas. Um, I just wanted to say um, that I've also experienced that too. He said a friend of his kind of um, questioned or didn't agree, um, you know, with his knowledge um, about politics. Um, I've too have um been going through this now mind you um these are people who i have you know you know have kind of like gave a uh political education you know you know with the limited knowledge that i do have and i can say that you know most of the time i'm accurate and i'm also even if i don't if i feel i'm not accurate i also um encourage them to you know um go and research what i say and i also cite my sources you know i'm I'm, i commonly do this um even with racism so um you know this particular time um during the election you know it's just basically just been anything that uh contradicts the uh cnn narrative um, the Fox News narrative, the um, MSNBC narrative, um, you know, people that, I've, you know, that I talked to recently and that I'm, I'm you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty accurate most of the time. I'm even being questioned and, you know, and, and that's, that's, that, that kind of uh, bothered me. Um, I'm not saying that, um, I've, you know, somebody can't challenge what I say, but to just kind of like just trust uh, white supremacist news outlets and just and to believe them without even questioning them is 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 kind of like um the propaganda is like it's like you know it's it's effective it's it's really effective and um. This is this is going to be a very troublesome four years if um because on what Donald Trump he made it Donald Trump made it easier for me to explain racism whereas 
Joe Biden and, you know, I got your black, black people and Kamala Harris. And um, like I was listening to Democracy Now! And Democracy Now! basically gave this woman about four different nationalities and two different races. She's Asian. She's Jamaican. She's African-American. She's woman. And it's the confusion. It's it's just going to lead to just more confusion. You know, that's all I got to say for tonight. Can I respond to that, guys? Confusion is lethal. Yes, uh, Mo in Dallas. Uh, uh, for 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 your statement, um, uh, the interesting thing is, um, my my friend knows that I that I do do you know political research, you know, and and she doesn't. You understand, like like she she will tell you she does not follow politics. It is the strangest thing. There's nothing that I can do. I send her links. I, and I use, I, I don't just, like, I, I use mainstream media, independent media sources, independent black media. I, I've sent her, uh, like, it, it's just, just articles on articles, you know, and I just, just, and asking what does she think about it, you know, and, and to try to, and, and, and give her, you know, encouragement to being more politically savvy. And at the end of the day, there's nothing I can do. Like, like they have like, a, hello, Mr. James. They have like, a, I don't know. I think I just, I don't want to call it a cult, <laughs> but it's like some code. They're very codified, or she's very codified in her understanding that black women have a different plight than black people. I don't know. Like she doesn't, she understands divisiveness, but she still thinks what she, it's just, it's a battle. And I won't stop fighting because I care for her. It's just, I'm not going to force it on her. Like, cause usually when I'm right, I give her, you know, I give her a C, you know, I don't even hold it over her head. I just welcome her because if you, if, even if you do that, if you if you try and I told you so, sometimes that 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 could be detrimental. But thank you, and I, I will um, re-listen to the program and and definitely take notes on what you said. I heard what you said, but I would like to rehear. But thank you, sir. You my love. No, no problem. No problem. Hitler, Hitler would be proud at this propaganda machine that we see in modern day America. Incidentally, uh, Mr. Fuller does recommend uh, against the uh, I told you so's. I think he said that he too has experienced uh, that same type of response where people, you know, who didn't <clears throat> rejected what he had to say, which, you know, there's lots of that. Uh, and then it'll be something that he said was going to happen and it turned out true or just racism in general, which, you know, uh, and yeah, he said that, you know. <laughs> doesn't work people generally <laughs> that does not make them any more receptive so just try to stick to logic and when people are that he has always emphasized the time to talk is when folks are asking questions like oh they are now receptive but before then it's just going to be conflict and that's what we are trying to minimize but yeah really sad bugs 
barbecue rubbish. <sighs> Incidentally, uh, can I be heard? Thomas in New York. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good evening to all the callers. Um, man, you played a clip, man. I really hate to hear black people explain why they vote. Um, they sound so confused to me. And um, generally, when I ask questions that challenge their logic uh, by questioning their reasoning, their answers and thoughts display both psychological dissonance and predictive coding. And it's very interesting. Um, this this year's election, the overall gains for Trump um, um, compared to 2016 is quite interesting. 4% gains in blacks from 2016, and that was a gain in both black males and black females. 3% gain in Latinos, 5% gain in Asians, and the 2% gain in white women um, from last year, which he already had the majority of last time. Um, but the one group that he seemed to have lost is uh, white men. And at first, it didn't seem logical. Um, but after rethinking it, um, maybe white men was practicing codification. Um, they realized that, you know, white supremacy, they have a system. And um, they had a problem with the last four years, racism and white supremacy being the focal point um, in various media outlets um, under Trump. Um, and they just wanted wanted it removed from the general conversation. Again, um, I think that would probably be their reasoning. Um, the election, um, from what I'm seeing, and based off of um, some of the sites I'm going to, is far from over. Um, the media, both mainstream and social, uh, are practicing sedition um, by keeping a lot of information out. Um, there will be major challenges coming, and uh, the media is not letting anyone um, who questions the validity of the election come on here or they instantly discredit them. They are now how, discrediting Rudy Giuliani. Um, I said, wow. Uh, the man who prosecuted and locked up Frank Lucas and Nikki Barnes and Video Genovese and Chen Gigante and John Gotti invented CompStat, which they call predictive policing now. Implemented stop and frisk is now being discredited. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, sometimes when you look at this, it's like, man, they definitely have an agenda. Um, the vaccines will be mandatory um, for if you want your normal life to continue. Um the very ironic, the vaccines that Trump was talking about seemed to pop up the first trading day after the election. Um, winter college sports have already been canceled. Ticketmasters introduced restrictions. Any person who has not been vaccinated or taken a coronavirus test within 48 hours of a sporting event, concert, convention, um, theater show, or play, or will not be allowed to buy tickets or enter the venue. I predict movie theaters would impose similar restrictions 
maybe even restaurants and stores. Um, in the media, um, who has a history of reporting accurately and truthfully, truthfully, when it comes to black people, have not used us as propaganda um, and used propaganda to continually discredit and criminalize black people. Um, they've done a great job convincing these white politicians that um, black people are so disproportionately affected by the coronavirus, we need to be the first people on the list to be vaccinated along with their grandparents. So it's very interesting. Um, George Floyd, I don't know what was worse, um, seeing a black man crying, black male crying for his mama while taking his last breath with the police or their knee on his neck, or seeing a black male crying for his mama in the middle of an obvious war against black people. You know, I didn't know whether to be uh, upset or disappointed, um, especially since this war has been going on for 500 years now. Uh, last thing I wanted to say is um, when they add caste to critical race theory, it's going to be a very dangerous weapon. Uh, whiteness studies, a.k.a. white privilege, comes from critical race theory. Critical race theory has two functions. Uh, first function is proposes that white supremacy exists and exhibits power maintained over time, and particularly that the law may play a role in this process. I don't think it may play a role. Um, and it also, the second part is, it investigates the possibility of transforming the relationship between law and racial power hmm, as, as, as well as pursuing a project of achieving racial emancipation and anti-subordination, which is feminism, more broadly. And I'll be my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. <clears throat> will be interesting to see, you know, what happens once the vaccine, once more information becomes available and yeah, who's going to be the priority groups, all of that. Uh, as I already said, it's been lots of white people, armed white people who've already been out saying, oh no, I'm not doing any of the vaccine. All this is a hoax and a bunch of fooey. So we shall see. Uh, number again is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. We have about 15 minutes uh, left on the program. Uh, if you have uh, thoughts, observations to share. I did think of uh, Dr. Matula Shakur. We were talking briefly about uh, the black healthcare workers uh, who had 911 called on them were just trying to do their job, heal. Uh, I thought of uh, Dr. Uh, Matulu Shakur, uh, where he was a practicing acupuncturist and was working to help uh, black people who had substance abuse issues and what have you, and white people attacked him uh, viciously. Um, same type of thing where you're just trying to do good work, trying to be a healer, and Lots of problems, racism, white supremacy, specifically uh, other folks who dialed in uh, that we have missed. Totally. We have about 15 minutes, a little less left in the broadcast. Yeah, have you heard? 
Greetings, caller in Florida. Can you heard? Heard you as well. We'll get you next. No problem. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, I believe one of the previous callers mentioned about how, uh, like how they were giving the uh, vice president elect Kamala, Kamala Harris all of these categories, and they, and I know she used were actually uh, women, uh, Native American, Latino, African American, and once again, like that term, ends up benefiting white women uh, the most. And I think about how here in Florida, there was a a person I was running as in Kamek. Uh, and the way she um, like marketed herself was, was uh, very interesting. She definitely had the rifle, of course, Trump supporter, earned a lot of money, uh, you know, the funding and everything. Now, in the beginning ads, she showed a scowl, like angry or whatever, and, you know, got mass support during the primaries. Then up to the election, uh, dominated her opponent, white person, white male, actually. And she started smiling, holding the rifle. Okay. Now, this is a, a white woman. I don't hear her going out. I don't even see her going out saying, oh, uh, you know, this is a good one for women, me winning this election. She said, I guess she's the youngest, I, uh, I guess, in this part of Florida to be a representative, I guess, or whatever the uh, political position was. But that candidate particularly uh, definitely represents white supremacy um, in an emboldened way. Uh, the segment about the black males and their different choice and who they voted for, that was very interesting as well, how it looks like they were trying to set them against each other, to I guess to be as direct as I can, to make them oppose each other. Like one was even saying, well, like such and such said, I don't necessarily agree with that. And I thought that was um, uh, heavily anti-black. And the misandry was in that as well. Uh, And there was um, uh, an experience that I had. I wanted to just end with this. The black female coworker that I have, she was speaking with, um, another victim of racism, right? And she's, as I mentioned, she's pregnant. So, you know, it takes a while before they get the gender of the baby. So she already has uh, two male, black male children. This black female was uh, very excited, you know, enthusiastic about the child being a female, right? Says she wanted to be the uh, godparent and everything. The uh, victim of racism comes in and says that, oh, it looks like the child's going to be a boy. He's going to be, it's going to be a boy. And she's just all disappointed. Um, 
oh, no, I can't believe this. And I was going to be a godparent and everything. And that's uh, insinuating that you don't want to be one now, that the child is male. So I thought about that, uh, and that happened a few weeks ago. I just never shared that. But um, I'll just end on that. And thanks for allowing me to speak. Oof, black male privilege. Indeed. Uh, I was, before we got to that, I was cracking up laughing when he was talking about the white female candidate. She started her campaign. I'm a Trump supporter, of course, uh, and snarling, holding her rifle. Then later on, she changed it up, smiling. I said, Can, what, what black candidate? Can you imagine running for any office? Sheriff, dog catcher, mayor, anything like garbage collector. And they're going to be not just holding a firearm, peace shooter will say, and snarling like, come on. I cry. Al Sharpton is running for mail collector with a firearm. It's not like, come on. Maxine Waters is running for dog collector and snarling. Give me a breath. Jesse Jackson is running for dog collector with a pea shooter. Hmm. <laughs> I can't even. Like, come on. Come on. Woo. The system of racism, white supremacy. Incidentally, uh, with that last incident, I was also reminded they uh, I got a shirt. I've worn it a few times. It was a gag gift from a listener. Total joke. Uh, And it says to the black woman, thank you from a black female, no less. Uh, And I just said at minimum, it's very vague because it doesn't say for what, like which black female are you talking about? Like Susan Rice? Who are you talking about? Kamala Harris? Who are you talking about? Anyway. Uh, but I said, man, like, I don't I don't think you could have a shirt like this for black males. Like, to the black man. Thank you. <laughs> like, it would I think it would be totally understood as a gag gift. Like, I couldn't even imagine, like, if you were going to put pictures on it. Like, I even had more. I, I literally stopped and howled on the floor laughing for about 15 minutes once I thought about the absurdity of uh, if this shirt actually existed and you were going to put pictures on it to the black man. Thank you. Like, whose picture is on this shirt? Like, President Obama? Al Sharpton? O.J. Simpson? Jesse Jackson like I just started to think like is there a live black male that I could put on this shirt and people would take seriously like oh yeah like thank you man black males like like, who and I couldn't come up with one like it would have to be some dead black people and even then I think it would be like I don't know he was a strong armed rapist (laughs) anywho Yes, nobody wants black male children, black males around, bugs, barbecue, rubbish. Any other folks that we missed? To- oh, we did. It was another black uh, male caller, I think. Uh, greetings, Gus. 
callers and listeners. Um, thanks for the time. I know it's a little short, so I'm just trying to make it brief. Um, I really appreciated that segment that you played in regards to North Point, the segment uh, for that health facility. Um, it sounded like something that probably should be implemented in almost every non-white community around the world, not even just in so-called Americans. Um, I was surprised to even hear that it, it, it had even existed because I can't recall, I can't think come to mind anything like that here in uh, New York State, to be quite frank. Um, the other thing is, I guess, the topic that most people are discussing more is Kamala Harris. I, I'm going to go on a little more of a bigger scale with it because I feel that one of my, one of the main concerns is, and I was discussing this with my authentic partner, she has concerns with her as well, but I have a greater concern of the fact that is it a possibility that we're dealing with that black women are becoming another buffer class? Um, and this is, you know, doing largely by the fact that they've been accepted in academia more than us. They, they attend school more than us. They, the resources and the way the society has been structured has been set up for them to have more access than we do. So we end up living different lives often. And I don't think most of us even question it. What, what's happening now is I hear a lot of rhetoric in regards to Paul Harrison, all positive. Very rarely, if even hear a negative judgment or anything, that connotation. Um, but I, again, I go back to say that it's one of the issues that I think is draws real big concern is her, be, is this buffer class being created and the fact that she has a, a white male on her arm, along with the, the already positions in society, media portrays advertisements constantly with non-white females, white males. I think this, this tactic I mean, cannot even be understated very serious thing that it's been happening for the last couple of decades. And this is, this is something that we should pay close attention to to see how it pans out um, as things progress. I mean, Dr. Curry and um, Dr. T. Henson uh, Johnson about this as well. Um, one last thing, and this is a book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I'd just like to, if I could say the last minute here, just one quote from the book in regards to television. Um, page 77, where he says, of course, there is nothing wrong with playing peekaboo, and there is nothing wrong with entertainment. As some psychiatrist once put it, we all build castles in the air. The problem comes when we try to live communications, media of the late 19th, early 20th century, television and, and tele, telegraphy, photography at their center called the peekaboo world to exist. But we need, but we did not come to live there until television. Um, and that's pretty much all right there. Um, thank you for the time. And, uh, everybody stay safe and stay well for the next Monday Power Day. Peace. Mm. Thanksgiving rapidly uh, approaching, so-called. Much obliged, sir. Uh, Neil Postman, we read Stupid Talk, Crazy Talk in our book club. Uh, not, was that two, three years ago, right before 
The Flood. Uh, he also wrote Amusing Ourselves to Death uh, and other topics. He talks a lot about language. In fact, Amusing Ourselves to Death. I read that the year the cows came into existence. He talks a lot about context uh, and one of the problems with television, especially TV news. Uh, it erodes context, which is critical for how we gain understanding context. Yeah. Where, where did you find the book, Gus? Um, um, sorry, the um, crazy talk, stupid talk. But I can't find that for under $60. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it said that about uh, White Dog a number of the really important books uh, that we have stumbled upon have been very very expensive I think White Dog was like hundreds of dollars it was way more than that anyway uh, I went to the library uh, way back when the Rona did not oh. exist and got a copy and uh scanned uh the whole thing so i have a pdf of it um but yeah i think do i have a i feel like i might even have a physical copy of that one as well but yeah i have an e-copy i have electronic copy that's how we got to oh i'm looking at it i have the actual book i don't even remember when i got the uh actual book but i do have the uh e-copy as well but somewhere along the way i did pick up uh yeah the physical of crazy talk stupid talk don't know where I did not pay sixty dollars for it. Um, if I email you, would I be able to get that uh, ebook? Sure, sure. We shared when we did the um, book club. I think it might be linked in the description to one of the episodes when we read it in the archives. But yeah, no problem. Sounds good. Appreciate. Much obliged. Uh, I did want to make sure I, I include. Uh, I think with number one, I don't think Kamala Harris, she's a victim of white supremacy cowbell. I don't think Kamala Harris, uh, I don't think her experience is equivalent to that of the average black female in the U.S. I could be wrong. I don't think most black females have a white husband and uh, her experience. Uh, But all of that notwithstanding, uh, I think white people, racists, Uh, have been extremely successful uh, with their propaganda of intersectionality and patriarchy uh, and the black misandry. I think all of that together with the fact that they have deliberately not allowed very many black males to advance and they've allowed a few more or substantially more black females to uh, advance academically for decades and then a part of that advancement, especially the collegiate level, if you get it, get that doctorate and all that, be a tenured professor, can't talk about racism, but you can certainly talk about intersectionality and demonize the black male some and all of that. It's even encased where Isabel Wilkerson, she said the black female at the bottom of the hierarchy of gender and race. She said that and had no statistics at all and talked about white women being victims of discrimination. I think they have been very very racists have been very effective with all of that propaganda because it gives a totally flawed understanding of white supremacy racism. Uh, I don't think uh, I don't think the typical black female is able to function at all uh, in a position of power with regards to black females or behave as a so-called buffer class not in the u.s but i do think you have lots and lots 
of victims of racism who are very confused about racism. And he said, Dr. T. Hassan Johnson, I think you have a lot of victims of racism. He said personal grievances. I think there is a lot of folks, males and females, who have personal grievances that greatly impact their politics when they go out and speak about racism. We heard a whole lot of folks today who said with the election, and I agree, lots of emotion and rhetoric. People were crying. I saw, I forgot, it wasn't as bad as 2008 and 2012. It was horrendous then, but I did see even Van Jones was on television. He was crying when they came out with the uh, so-called results and said Biden won. I, I said Thomas in New York, I agreed with that too, because I have seen uh, a number of reports here and there where it seems like this result is not final. Even the BBC in places where I was like, oh, are they still like counting up? Like I would crack up laughing if something happens at the end where Trump is going to stay. But I have seen that where, you know, it is still going. Anyway, uh, I did see Van Jones on television and he was crying and he said, it's just this this election is so important. It shows that character matters. And I was appalled. <laughs> what? Like, uh, Van Jones is a victim of racism. Anything on television, you know, I've concluded a long time ago is state Neil Postman amusing ourselves to death. Excellent mention. Anything on television, I already think it's staged. I mean, that could have all been scripted. We're reading cast. That could have all been scripted. He's a, vi- a victim of racism. That could have been a part of his salary. And you cry on three, two. That could have been the way it goes. But anyway, lots of emotion, lots of irred- rhetoric, very little logic. And when you have people who are functioning with no understanding of white supremacy, racism, and without logic, it's very easy for racists to come in and nudge you in any direction and have you. It's very easy for racists to manipulate and control your behavior with a few words, a few suggestions. The conditioning, we'll hear that at the end. Our conditioning They've been conditioning it for centuries. So, yeah, I don't that's not my view. I don't think there's a buffer class, but I definitely think the black misandry and the confusion racists have done a phenomenal job with all of that intersectionality rhetoric, all of the black male patriarchy rhetoric that can be. We heard the backbone of the Democratic Party, black female voters, black males, Man. I'll end with I thought that was great final observation uh, the caller pointed out caller in Florida where he said the black males in the segment from NPR they're even squabbling with each other right when they're talking like well he said that and I don't agree with that at all the segment with the black females they were in unanimous agreement I'm not saying you have to be in total agreement in fact <laughs> hey there's nobody has total agreement on racism, white supremacy. If we talk a lot, I'm not saying that's the goal, but I mean, that's a part of the conditioning all the time, just in those segments right there. Anyway, we'll have more time to chat about it all. Uh, in fact, we'll be right back in 12 hours. I'm going to make sure that we ask that miss Ant black 
misandry component. Has that been present in the global uh, coverage, global press coverage of the election, just to see, you know, what they've observed. Uh, But we'll be here at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific uh, on Sunday. Tune in, ask a question or two. Always think it's important to keep in mind global system of racism. We'll be here Tuesday. Jane Daly in Chicago, white fright. The sexual panic at the heart of America's racist history. Have to see if she's connected to the Daily Empire in Illinois. We shall see. Anyway, much obliged for everyone's participation. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Reading is more important than watching television. Amusing ourselves to death is a great start. Or crazy talk, stupid talk. Anywho, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy for many of the reasons we discussed this evening. Evening, The case that was mentioned about the teen who uh, got into a car accident, knocked on the door, asked for help, and was killed. I believe that was Renisha McBride in uh, Michigan. We covered that case. I wrote about that case. Unfortunately, she was under the influence. Victim of racism for sure. Theodore Wafer should be in greater confinement for a long time. That's where he is. He was convicted. But sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. In addition to being sober, man, I still say hunker down. Uh, we heard from being Toronto, like, man, shooting in Toronto. She's not even in the States. They don't even have, you know, all the wacky gun owners and such that. Well, I take that back. Canada, they do have a lot of gun, uh, white gun owners there. So haven't seen all the gun protesting and such, but they do have a lot of gun owners in Canada. My mistake. Uh, she said they were out shooting uh, earlier this evening. Man, that is the type of thing. Exactly what I've been talking about. It's been too many reports uh, of whites with guns out in the street and mad out in the street about the vaccine out in the street about the Rona or the election or whatever hunker down if you gotta go out you are alert oh is that gunshot this is done oh is that white people being reckless with firecrackers might at least want to be aware that might might also be a cue to vacate the area they'll probably be doing that for the end of the year soon so Lots of reasons. Uh, just be really mindful. Uh, we're not about having, you know, squabbles and bickering with any uh, anybody out in public either. Uh, if it looks like things are escalating, you should be thinking if this is a white person, they're probably armed. Even if they're non-white people, they could probably be be armed. <sighs> Let's get to safety immediately. I'm not escalating anything. There's no reason to take unnecessary risks in 2020. Already had enough of those more coming. We're sober, hunkering down if we can. If you got to go out, you are super alert. You are buckled driver or passenger. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Again, we need to be hyper vigilant about what is happening around us. In addition, we're trying to minimize contact with race soldiers, badge or no stop and frisk and all that. Just doing the little things, being buckled, being sober. Stand in the house if we can, really. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest 
levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. No name calling. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. You're a victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.